All right. Well, first today is Allison. Allison wrote in and said, Why does Angela Merkel have the politics of letting refugees come in and destroy her country slash continent? Does she have an alternative agenda? Is it true that refugees could have been and were taken care of in camps within Syria and did not have to flee into Europe? That is from Allison. Hi, Allison. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? You're not fine. Not with that question. No. We must start with honesty first and foremost. How is life in Germany these days? Well, um, actually, I've I've moved from Germany back to the States. Uh, oh, okay. So then you are fine. My apologies. Yes, yes. I, I uh, didn't like what I was reading. And uh, I felt as though I was uh, living in two worlds because um, what I would read on the Internet really was bad, very bad. And what I would see uh, developing in my town, you know, I saw it slowly transforming and things would happen. For example, um, like there was an ambulance that was close to my house and normally I would hear it three to five times a week. And in the last uh, month that I was there, I would hear it between three and eight times a day. Um, you know, I would see a lot more women. I would see women wearing the niqab. I mean, there were a lot of Turkish people in my town. So I was used to seeing the hijab. But, um, you know, seeing the niqab and the burqa was a bit, I don't know, uh, difficult to stomach as someone who, you know, has worked hard to study, to get a job and, you know, be treated as an equal, you know what I mean? So I, I had a hard time with that, to be honest. Right. Right. And anyway, and, I was, sorry, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I really enjoyed living, uh, in Germany and, uh, never ever planned on returning to the U S I mean, it was just great living there. And I felt very bitter about what was going on. Um, and I just didn't understand why that was happening. So, I started doing a lot of searches on the internet and saw a lot of strange things that might be going on. And uh, so it is the question, why would she do that? Well, I was just curious about your experience in Germany, though. Did you feel yourself threatened uh, as a woman? I don't know if you're white or not, but as a white woman or as a, a German, did you feel threatened or was it mostly just the environment that, that was a bit odd? I never felt personally threatened. Um, <clears throat> I have to say I would go sometimes walking and see men, not in groups of, let's say, uh, 20 or 30, but in groups of maybe four or five. And of course, with what you read, it made you a bit uncomfortable. I was also living in uh, the state of Hessen, and I had read, for example, that um, when they would put the refugees in a gymnasium of the school, that they would write letters, the school would write letters to the parents and say, if you have a daughter, please make sure she doesn't wear a skirt or shorts to school because that might cause misunderstandings, in quote. And I have two, I have some children and I have uh, two daughters and I did not want uh, to change my life like that. Then there was another thing that I had seen where people were complaining about how the refugees close to the schools were 
sort of heckling and taunting the children. And the mayor told the people that they should just take an alternate route to the school instead of walking by where these people are. So, you know, I just didn't like the way I saw life changing. Um, then, for example, you have the St. Martin's Fest, which is in November, November 11th. And they wanted to change the name or, or I don't know if it was official or, or, or what, but they wanted to change it to the Laterna Fest, the Lantern Fest, so as not to offend. And then I heard that they wanted to change the name of Christmas back to uh, what they called it in the DDR, the Light Fest. Yeah, because they want to just sort of be accommodating to the multiculturalism. And I've just read now, um, while I was waiting here, that there is a German rail which goes from Leipzig to Chemnitz, and they want to put a carriage in there for women and children only so that they would feel better and safer. And, you know... It's just they're changing the way of life and they're going backwards and it's just ridiculous. I mean, even after the Cologne attack, um, they they were sort of blaming the women and saying the women should dress differently. And I've also read that when people are, let's say, victims, somehow things get twisted and the you know native victims become criminalized. And the perpetrator goes unpunished. So, well, sure, because because they don't want the statistics to show up about how dangerous some of these migrants are, right? I mean, so the police will um, either refuse to arrest or refuse to go into the no-go zone areas, as we saw with this Australian 60 Minutes crew who tried to go into Little Mogadishu and were driven out, and the police refused to go in there with them, saying it would just be too... Provocative. Uh, so, so the police, uh, I, I assume, are under orders from the civil authorities, or under maybe not orders, but strong suggestions from the civil authorities to not make the numbers look too bad, right? Like, I mean, this is we're in this world of magical thinking where if you change the numbers, you change the reality, and so um, it's. I mean, the same thing is true in the states, right? In the states, uh, after Ferguson and after these riots and so on, in particular. They uh, have, I think, stopped arresting as many blacks or stopped confronting as many blacks. And this is causing violent crime to research again in some American cities after like a decade or two of decline. And so, yeah, I mean, it is it is barbaric and it is medieval to to start instituting these standards which comply to an irrational and aggressive ideology and which roll back the hard won gains uh, for women in uh, in the West, and uh, there is no end to this. Well, I mean, where where does where is the line in the sand? Where did you say no, no? It's time for you to adapt to to our country. You know, if I if I if I move to Japan, I don't get to demand that everyone in Japan just speak English and give up Japanese. Right? <laughs> the expectation would be that I would learn Japanese and I would adapt into that culture if I wanted to, and if I didn't want to, that would be fine, of course. But um, there is no end to this appeasement. Uh, at all where, where at what point do you I mean i watched this uh, show recently here well so here by here in north america this was an american show where this uh, guy was on this panel with a bunch of leftists and he was saying look the half a million 
girls in America are now at risk for female genital mutilation. I mean, that this would be an issue in 21st century Western America, female genital mutilation. Yeah. And of course, the feminists were like, oh, nonsense, I don't believe it. Yeah, yeah, because, you know what, one in four women raped and then campus raped, yeah, that's all more believable than the fact that people from third world cultures come to America, sit on welfare, and keep those third world cultures. Well, um, on your point, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, on, about assimilation, <clears throat> I don't think that that is necessarily a problem because, for example, if you go to New York City, uh, you may go into Chinatown and you will find people there speaking only Chinese. They cook Chinese food. They have everything Chinese. You're like in China. If you go to Little Italy, you'll find the same. There are people who only speak Italian and they bought, brought their culture and tradition. Same with the Polish neighborhood. Same with everything. But I think the different there, there's a difference here. Um, and it is just hard to, to say, but there seems to be, at least if you read, I've read a lot uh, or seen a lot of videos from Bill Warner. Don't know if you know who he is. I do. But, um, you know, he writes why people are, you know, scared. And it's because in the history, there has been the, the desire, let's say, to spread and take over and you know whereas an italian who wants to feed you pasta and pizza is not a threat um you would find a lady wearing a burqa who's going to you know potentially change people's perspective on how women are regarded that is in a way a threat to your let's say, the world the way you see it and would cause a paradigm shift in your way of viewing life and acting and everything, which is very significant and, you know, backwards. Yeah, I mean, yes, of course, of course. Um, it's, the, it's the difference between culture and dominating ideology. I mean, if, if um, Italians move into the neighborhood, there is a kind of enrichment there that's welcome and fine. It doesn't generally increase the crime rate, right? It doesn't make this the streets unsafe because I guess since the days of Rome, Italians haven't been all about let's move to a new country and take it over and impose our um, theo theological totalitarianism on the country, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, so you're, you're so no, sorry. Number one, you're talking about culture, and number two, with the Chinese, you're talking about a very high IQ group, right? Chinese um, uh, as East Asians, so Japanese and South Koreans, and and so on. They have an IQ that's higher than the average of you and I, you know, in terms of the races, right? I mean, they have the highest outside of the Ashkenazi Jews. They have the highest IQs around, and high, and high IQ is associated ethic. with. Yeah, that high work ethic, low criminality, low welfare. If you've got a high IQ, going on welfare is a really bad deal, and you're smart enough to see it, right? Because if, if you have a high IQ, you can go and make seventy, eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars just by going and working decently hard because you're really smart. And so it's a bad deal for you to go on welfare, 
because you'll make less on welfare, even counting the welfare cliff, you'll make less on welfare if you're smart. Now, if you're low IQ, welfare is the very best deal you can get. And that's why people tend to stay on welfare, which blunts their desire to integrate. And, uh, you know, if you come from, I don't know, some country in North Africa, let's say you only speak Arabic, you move to Germany, you live with a bunch of other people who all speak Arabic, you're on government welfare, so you don't have to integrate. Are you going to wake up every day and say, well, I should really go and learn German? Well, first of all, if you're low IQ, and North Africa has a low IQ relative, with 80, between 80 and 90, depending on where you count it, as is the Middle East as a whole. So it's going to be really hard for you to learn German, uh, just as it is to move from one script to another, right? I mean, I remember going... In the year 1999, I went to Morocco with a friend of mine. We spent a week or two in Morocco, and then I flew straight to China, and I spent uh, three weeks in China for business. So basically, I could not read a sign for like a month. And it was like, oh, this is terrible. I don't know what's going on. And so if you're not that smart, then learning German is really, really hard, if not just fundamentally impossible. And what is the upside of you learning German if you're not that smart? Well, you're not going to do that well because even if you learn German, you're probably not going to learn it that well. And what kind of job can you get if you're not that smart? Yeah, I don't know, maybe you could be a janitor or a busboy, but you're not going to, after all this effort of learning German and trying to integrate into the culture, you're not likely to make as much or at least any more then you get on welfare. So the whole system is is rigged and designed for these migrants to fail, to fail foundationally and fundamentally. The only way that groups can integrate into a culture is through the economic incentive of participation. And welfare completely takes away that economic incentive. They say, ah, oh, well, it was a nation of immigrants in the 19th century and all immigrants. Yeah, before there was welfare, before there was free health care, before now they want free dental care. Like, it doesn't work. It is setting up a massive group of people to fail. Whereas if they were to go into a Middle Eastern country, like if a lot of the uh, Syrians were to go as, as the religion is compatible, the climate is compatible, the language is compatible, if they would go to Saudi Arabia, they would do pretty well. They would do it. This is cruel, cruelty in the extreme. Yeah. You don't take some black family from Detroit and drop them in Beijing and give them welfare and expect them to do well. It, it, it doesn't work. And so this is a massive setup for catastrophic failure. And um, we can get into the reasons why, but, but I just, it's different than high IQ Chinese people coming. Because the high IQ Chinese people, yeah, the first generation are probably going to stay in Chinatown. But the second generation who grow up speaking English are going to gain far more by economically integrating into the society as a whole than staying in Chinatown or staying, or staying on welfare. That is not the case with low IQ populations. And remember, the smartest people in the Middle East left the Middle East a long time ago. Along all the good sips of coffee from the Middle Eastern Cup were taken long ago. We are down now to the dregs. You know, there's an old saying, as I mentioned before, about the Jews in Europe and the 
pessimistic Jews left Europe and got to America and the optimistic Jews ended up in concentration camps. And all of these smart, able, well, the vast majority of the smart, able Middle Easterners left decades ago and are already in the West. Who's coming now is the people who either couldn't or didn't or weren't smart enough or couldn't get through the paperwork or weren't literate. All those people are coming and they are going to fail disastrously in, to integrate. And what that means is they're going to scream racism until they take over. Yeah, you know, the other issue is that, you know, we were talking about the other cultures. <clears throat> they are also respectful of law. They recognize that when a policeman comes, you know, you you know, you may be angry that the policeman is coming because you went through a, a stop sign or something, but you recognize, well, I actually did something wrong and you stop and you talk to the guy. But what these people are often doing, I mean, you've seen pictures of Molenbeek and um, uh, what is that in Sweden and all that, you know, they're throwing rocks and stones and, you know, little explosives, Molotov cocktails and whatnot. And um, that is, of course, what's happening in, in a city. But I had um, a friend who was a teacher, and she told me that they were teaching an ethics class. And uh, some of the children who, of course, were Muslim, they pushed the books and threw them on the floor and said, oh, this, this doesn't pertain to us because it's not our law. And if you have a problem with that, you can go talk to my father. So right. they just don't respect the law. And in a civilized country, you have some fundamental uh, values that you share, which makes the society work. And one of the, I mean, the basic one is that you respect the law. Well, but they do respect the law. It's just not Western law. They respect the, the writings of their holy books. They respect the teachings of their elders. They respect their tribal traditions. They just, they have no respect for Western law. And why would they? They're not about to follow Western law any more than I'm about to start taking my orders from an imam. And, and, and of course, they have a particular theological perspective. Of course, not all, and depends on your interpretation. But a lot of them have this particular theological perspective that it is immoral. It is immoral to follow Western values. It is, goes directly against a lot of the teachings. And so the idea that this is somehow going to be compatible or, or is going to work out uh, is mad. I mean, you, you can put a, a sheep in with a lion, but only one of them's coming out in the morning. And you know who that will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, can, I think I can see which way it's heading. I can, I can count reproductive rates. Well, I guess we'll see what happens. I no, mean, we won't. Sorry, I, I don't want to. Sorry to interrupt you, but I don't want to say we'll see. Um, like um, there's a maybe, maybe without significant action, without at least having a conversation uh, in in Germany, the conclusion is absolutely certain, absolutely certain that Germany, as it has constituted itself for the past few hundred years, will cease to exist in its current form. 
will cease to exist. There's there's almost no question of that. And unless like unless you do something, unless Germans do something, well, I think there's no there's no possibility. Germans are having what 1.2, 1.3 kids per family per couple. That's right. And a lot of the immigrants are having three, four, five, and so on. By 2020, Germans 18 to 30 are going to be in the minority relative to everyone else. Like it's simply numbers and and aggressiveness of purpose. So there is no. Um, it's not a let's see. I mean, I really want to make that point clear. Because the let's see is part of the passivity that is the problem. Well, I was trying to be optimistic. <laughs> no, but do I, not I'm, be optimistic in the absence of numbers. No, well, I'm I'm actually not optimistic. That's why I left. Mm. Right. So so don't don't because people are gonna people in Germany are gonna listen to this. Right. And if you say, well, we'll see, you're giving them an out. Well, you know, cross your fingers. I'm sure everything will be no, 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 no. The numbers are very clear. And Islam has taken over, what, 60 countries already? Oh, but not 61. No way. Why, why would they do that? Well, for the last, like, they they have a vision that people in the West have a tough time understanding because people in the West generally do not have ethics that require self-sacrifice. They don't have a larger vision of where their life is, where they're going, they don't feel that they're part of anything bigger. They don't feel like they have any particular values that have been handed to them that they need to fiercely preserve, protect, and expand. You know, we in the West, we wake up and we say, how can my life be a little nicer today? And the that's where appeasement comes from. How can my life be a little bit nicer today? And uh, the problem with appeasement, of course, is uh, you get weaker and your enemy gets stronger. Yep, that's pretty bleak. It's not bleak. No, don't, don't. I mean, I don't mean to stereotype you as a lady, but you're applying all these emotional terms to things which are simple facts. They're not coming. The migrants are not coming to integrate. They're not coming to integrate. There's no question of that. And and we have what two or three generations of facts in Europe to look at. The Turks in Germany, how well did they integrate, the Muslims integrate in, in Pakistan? Um, how was Bosnia and Serbia with regards to these conflicts? Where do they go and integrate? I, I, it, this is not bleak to state facts. No, that's right. I mean... Um... The other thing is that since it is the vast majority, I think something like 75 or 80 percent are men who came in. And, you know, the goal was originally, I think, to help the people in Syria. And people were coming from or are coming from every corner of the world. I mean, they're coming from all over Africa, Eritrea, sure. Somalia. Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, and all the way as well from Pakistan and Afghanistan. And, you know, people also from the Balkan area. So, and, and they're men, right? So when they, who are they going to have these kids with? I mean, I know we say that they're going, to, that they typically have four or five kids, you know, per wife. And, uh, 
I know that Angela Merkel said that she would allow them to bring their wives. I think maybe she has, I don't know, is she toning that down? I hope. But I, I, a, I then don't is know. It, is it better or worse if they bring their wives? Because if they don't bring their wives, then probably the rape will not go down. And if they do, you're going to, you know, be outnumbered sooner rather than later. So it's really not a good situation. It's death by fire or hanging. No, it's not. Look, right? There are what? One, there are like what? One point six billion Muslims in the world, and were they converted by the Aristotelian rational? an empirical basis of the Islamic philosophy? Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. That's not how people became Muslims throughout history. And yeah, so you're right. I mean, if if the wives come, then they'll start having kids, which the German taxpayers will have to pay for. Yeah, because the women don't work typically. Right. And, And where would they work? They don't speak German. That's right. They have no skills. Two-thirds of the people coming from Syria are illiterate in their own language, for God's sakes. Illiterate in their own language, let alone German. Come on. (laughs) This is insane. So either they're going to bring their wives, in which case they're going to start breeding, or, or, and this is true of third world cultures as a whole, low IQ cultures you know, you could argue that there are selected, as we've talked about in Gene Wars. They just have kids and 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 have kids. And, have kids. and that's the nature of the beast. This is one of the reasons why the countries remain poor. I mean, other than the IQ or it's a signal, they just breed like crazy. No resources, not enough to go around. So either they bring their wives or they don't bring their wives, in which case you have a lot of unattached young men with no jobs, no family prospects, no dating prospects. What happens then? It's definitely a recipe for disaster. Oh, absolutely. It is. And this is what I've been saying. You know, we started doing IQ years ago. And, and it's hard for people to, to, to grasp It's hard for people to grasp. You know, human biodiversity is a challenging topic. It's challenging on the left because everybody's supposed to be shaped by economic forces and everyone's supposed to be this clay that you can mold into whatever you want. So the left doesn't like the fact that there are seem to be hard limits to abilities between ethnic groups. And the right doesn't like it because they tend to be more religious and everyone's made in the image of God. So both... The left and the right reject the human biodiversity that comes from 50 to 60 to 70,000 years in wildly disparate environments, which is exactly the kind of evolution that you would expect. So you have this is this this weird. There's this weird unity between the left and the right to reject human biodiversity. Differences in strengths and weaknesses, abilities and limitations between races or ethnicities. It's one of these weird ways in which both the left and the right completely agree for vastly different reasons. And it's because on the left, they want to be able to save your wallet by giving you money. And on the right, it's because they want to be able to save your soul by giving you Jesus. So this is one of the reasons why it is very hard. It's like Moses parting and walking through. You've got to really 
fly through these narrows between the left and the right to try and get this information out. Which is why when people on, like when somebody brings up this sort of ethnicity or race and IQ stuff, people on the left attack you and people on the right just, eh, you know, it's God's image, you know. The soul is not material, not subject to evolution and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but, but, but the lack of this knowledge is, it, it literally is destroying civilization. And it sounds like hyperbole, but it is absolutely true. Because by inviting a hostile culture, low IQ population into the country and paying for them, see, it's, it, it, it's bad enough <laughs> that it, but that, but that the German taxpayer is being forced to pay for it. That is insult to injury. Uh, it is it is disaster. There's I, and I was thinking about this today. Like there, there's no. I can't think of any circumstance under which there's any genuine self-interest that is served by the German population or the European population of having these groups come into their country with the welfare state as it stands. Again, no welfare state, no state. Um, people can go wherever they want. I don't care. But this question of IQ and respect for law is very important. And it's not just the Middle East. You know, there's studies out that the American Blacks, particularly black males in America, resist arrest nine times more than white people. Resist arrest nine times more than white people. And then are shocked when some of them get shot by police. It's like, well, I I don't know what to say. I mean, if you I think if you're smart, you go, well, if I resist the cop, bad things are gonna happen. You know, and also you have more to lose if you're smart and you get in trouble with the law because it harms your employment opportunities, you know? But is if you're gonna spend your whole life on welfare, what does it matter? You're never gonna really apply for a job anyway. So what does it matter if you have a record? So no, I think I think we we've got to not sugarcoat this stuff at the moment. Because it I don't think it's too late if people really wake up and wake other people up. But if it's like, well, let's see, or maybe something great will happen, a miracle <laughs> occurs. Yeah. You know, there's an there's an old uh, I'll stop in a sec, but there's an old cartoon which is a guy who's got a he's working out a giant solution on a blackboard and he's got the answer. And right in the middle there's a little cloud, and it says, here, a miracle occurs. And the guy who's looking at this solution says, I'd really like it if you could explain to me this part a little more. <laughs> and it's like, let's jam all these incompatible high IQ, low IQ, Christian, atheist, agnostic, Islamic. Let's jam them all together and force the native Germans to pay for the immigrants so that they don't have to conform. Let's put all this together. Then a miracle occurs. And every, you know what I mean? Like, can we go to this miracle occurring bit? Let's find something in history. And the, the frustrating thing is Angela Merkel herself said in 2010, multiculturalism is a complete failure. And then? Well, you know, she sort of sold or tried to fool everyone or whatever. I mean, she didn't fool me that um, we had to let the refugees in because we had, there was this demographic problem in Germany that, you know, the birth rate was so low that we needed to bring people in that they were going to tax when they work and get jobs and they're going to pay for it. Well, I mean, come on. Yep. But um, 
I, they can't read, they don't speak the language, no, and they hate you all. No, but it, don't it, worry, we'll be able to get lots of money from them. Yeah, no, that, of course, that was ridiculous. And uh, I don't know if people really believe that. I mean, it's lunacy. But I had a friend who was very, very Christian, and I would call him a very good Christian, too. And he told to me, he told me, Oh, I'm I'm doing everything I can to help the refugees. And I think that we as Christians have to do that. And I said, well, you know, they're dangerous. I mean, there are some dangerous elements in, in the refugees. You don't know who's coming in. There's a potential for terrorism. I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia and the other countries. Again, I was trying to not be as, you know, <laughs> pessimistic extra on the outside as I felt on the inside, but as I felt on the inside, I did, it made me leave. So I speak louder with my feet than, uh, than with my words, but I mean, not even the, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and I forget the other ones, they won't even, uh, take in refugees because of the risk of, of terrorism. And my friend said to me, Oh, for me, it doesn't matter. We are Christians and we've got to help every one of them. And, you know, I'm shaking my head because, you know, economically, you can't do that. If you are the only lifeboat and you go by a sinking ship with 100,000 people, your boat is going to go down if you try to put everyone on board. And then you help nobody, not even yourself. So, well, hang on, hang on a sec, because you said a lot there. And first of all, Jesus was fairly against the welfare state. Because Jesus said, who am I to redistribute? your resources. And, and what he meant by that was that for something to be virtuous, it must be voluntary. Must be voluntary. You cannot achieve virtue at the point of a gun. That's the socialist fantasy, and Jesus specifically rejected that. That's why there are ten commandments, not, and the only command is one commandment, obey the government, right? That's the totalitarian model. But Christianity appealed to the conscience of the individual, prior Calvinist caller notwithstanding. And so there should be no compulsion in the matters of charity. So if this guy wants to help them, great. He should send money. He should go over. He should do what he wants. But he cannot He cannot force other people to follow his moral conscience. Now, I said years ago in the against me argument that statism, having a state, means you will have guns pointed at you in violation of your moral conscience. And this guy, by saying, we must help them. It's sort of like someone saying, wow, I'd really like to go out and get a girlfriend and have a great relationship with her and love her and have her love me back and have great sex and all that. So I'm just going to go out and rape some woman. And it's like, these two are not the same. So saying, well, I'd really like to help people so the government should point guns at everyone, extract money from them, bribe people, refuse to enforce the law selectively. I mean, God damn. Why the hell, Allison, should migrants have any respect for German law when Germans have no respect for German law? And I never thought I'd really say that about Germans. But Germans have no respect for German law. According to the law. Refugees must take up residence in the first country they come to. They can't. It's not a buffet in Europe. You can't pick and choose. 
Germany, one of the big problems with German history is they've got no access to the sea. So all the migrants who come to, almost all the migrants who come to Germany are coming to Germany illegally. So the only reason they're there is because Germans have, and the German government and the German people have no respect for their law. And then they say, well, they have no respect for our laws. It's like, well, they're here because you have no respect for your laws. So how on earth do you expect them to have respect for them? Well, that's true. Now, you wanted to know the why. Is that right? Exactly. Why? Right. Well, Allison, I will try to tell you, and then you can tell me if it makes any sense to you. Yeah. Actually, no. I'd rather this be a conversation. <laughs> That's all right. So you're, you're a married woman, right? Yes, I am. Okay. And do you have two kids? No, I've got uh, three. Three kids. Okay, good. Somewhere out there in the alt-right, someone is cheering. And having had pregnancy and, and childbirth, and I assume you breastfed, is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Can we say that you were just a little bit economically unproductive during this time? Yes. Or, or which is to say you were being very economically productive. It's just that your economic productivity won't show up for 20 years till your kids are out there making money, right? Well, I, I worked. I mean, I, I went to uh, university and I got a master's degree and I had a job for many, many years. And my, all my children came, you know, late, but I paid a lot of taxes. And uh, yeah, so. And uh, have you, how long have you not worked for? Or if you're not working now? Uh, two years. And um, I'm trying to figure out, you didn't have three kids in two years, did you? No, no, <laughs> Otherwise, no. I assume you're doing the show standing up. Yeah, no. All right. So you were, to a large degree, dependent, as Blanche Dubois says, on the kindness of strangers, but not really strangers, your husband, right? You were dependent upon the resources your husband was providing while you were having kids and breastfeeding and all that, right? That's right. I mean, I right. worked as well while I was re raising the kids, but not when they were little. Right. Not when they were right. babies. Yeah. Right. And, and, and even if you go to work, again, if it shakes out the way that it does in most families, even if you go to work, somebody has to be available to pick up the kids or, or if they're emergencies or dentists or doctors or whatever, right? I mean, that you're limited to some, obviously, because you've got kids. That's true. And it's not a bad thing. This, it's the joy of having children, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, no, it's a snow day. I guess I'm not handing in that report. I mean, you know, you know how it works, right? Yeah, although with the, so, you know, laptop, you can do quite a bit. Yes, that's true. That's true. So. I mean, suffice I it think, to say, I worked a lot, uh, even with young children, and... Um, yeah, I, I I worked basically day and night. Well, but that means that you're to some degree less available to your kids, right? Well, I worked sometimes very late at night to make up for the time I couldn't work during the day. Okay, that just means you're less available to your husband. I I I didn't. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to corner you. I just. The women who say I can do it all are not telling the truth. It's impossible to do it all. 
Yeah. You know, I, I do this show. I could do this show and write books until I became a father. And now I can do this show and be a father, but I can't write books anymore. At least not until my daughter's older. I mean, you can't, so many, so many hours in the day, right? Yeah, that's true. That's not a criticism. I mean, it's just a fact, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jack of all trades, master of none. So you end up not doing anything, you know, fully. Not as well as you could, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons why it's harder for women to get ahead in certain fields, you know, like the very highest levels of professions and so on, because it takes a lot of ambition. Ambition is partly driven by testosterone. And um, also women want to have kids. And so, you know, it takes 20 years of like crazy work to become really excellent at top level at something. And if you're going to have kids, you're just not going to have the focus. I mean, it's just not possible. It's not possible because there's only so many hours in the day and you can't magically. Anyway, so you get all that. So, so here's what I think happened. Do you know when, when did women get the, no, you're from America, right? You just were living in Germany for a time, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So women got the vote in, in Germany in 19, in the 1920s, right? That's right. And, and sorry, in, in America in the 1920s, probably in Germany too. Now there were two things that were missing when women got the vote. Because the vote is basically where do resources go in society, right? That's what the vote is. The vote is two things. Where do resources go and how should violence be used? Now, these two things kind of overlap. But I think of it as the cheddar and the gun, right? The cheddar is, it's a slang for money, but the cheddar and the gun. Now, the cheddar is where where do all the resources go in society? And the gun is, how is violence used in society? Now, when men had the vote in the 19th century, for the most part, I'm thinking about this more in England, it's more where I know, there was a property requirement for having a vote. Do you know why that was? Like you had to have a certain income or property to have a vote. Um. I guess because you had a, a, a stake in, you know, the area that was going to make, you know, have the decisions on it. I don't know. Excellent. Okay, good. That's perfect. Put the mic to your head. I kiss your brain. Okay. okay. So that's yeah, exactly right. So the state is around the protection of property rights. And if you don't have property, but you can vote, you have no stake in the protection of property rights. And so what limits our desire to go full piranha on the cow of public resources is that if you have an income and you have property, you're less likely to want to raise taxes on those who have income and have property because you'll be hurting yourself. So this was the basic argument in the 19th century was if we allow the poor to vote, the the poor will vote to take away the property of the rich and everyone will become poor. Mm. So and, and you could sort of look at this as an IQ proxy as well, insofar as if you have an income and you have resources or you have property, you're much more likely to be smart than people who don't. And so you will be able to think about the larger interest of society rather than get me some cheddar, oh guy with a gun, right? Right. So that's number one. When women got the vote, 
they had very little income and very little property. They were poor relative to men as a whole. And by poor, I simply mean that they individually themselves didn't have a lot of assets and resources as part of their husband's family or as part of the family as a whole they did, right? That's right. So women didn't have a lot of property when they got the vote. So what did they do with that vote? Well, uh, they probably uh, voted to turn things in their favor, of course. Yeah, they voted to take away everyone else's property. Okay. <laughs> but this is why you have a Great Depression, right? After women get the votes. <laughs> uh. Because women are like, hey, free stuff. Plus, women can no longer, sorry, women can no more resist attractive men offering them stuff than men can resist attractive women offering them sex, biologically. It's just the way that men and women are hardwired. Right. And so when you get women voting, you get a whole bunch of busybody programs like getting rid of uh, alcohol and because, you, know, you know, I don't want my husband to drink. So the government to whatever, right? I don't want to take responsibility for marrying a drunk. So let's get the government to put in prohibition. And so you have a massive resource transfer from men to women when women get the vote. Because when women vote to take away the money of people who have property and women have far less property, they win. Totally win. And then you get like old age pensions and all, all the stuff, right? That, and you get the push for free health care and all that because women consume more health care dollars than men. And women generally take care of the old and women outlive men. So you get all of this socialist crap going on because women are getting free stuff at the expense of men. Yeah, but uh, don't, you, don't you think that... You know, for a family unit to work, that's not a bad idea. What's not a bad idea? Well, I mean, presumably, you know, back then a woman was married because if she wasn't, she was considered an old spinster if she wasn't married by the time she was 25. So you did have a family unit typically. And if a woman inherited the man's, you know, property, in the end, it's good because then she could use it to take care of her children. No, I, I agree with all of that. I absolutely agree okay. with all of that. And those trends still remain true today. Right. That women who are married to men with property tend to be more conservative or more Republican or more on the right. Whereas the women who are either single or the women who have bad marriages and so on, right? Right. So when women got the vote, women very quickly found that the state was a more reliable provider than an inconstant man, right? Uh, right. Okay. Right? Yeah. And then, uh, so we'll skip over World War II. We'll get to that in a sec. So then, of course, after World War II, the late 50s, early 60s, women get the pill. And so finally, after, you know, <laughs> four billion years of evolution, it's finally control over the eggs uh, of a species. And feminism arises at the same time. As women control their own sexuality and uh, no longer need men to provide for them because they can get their resources from uh, the state. And this is true even now. Like in, in – um, men pay a lot more in taxation than women do. Men make more money. They accumulate more money. They have more resources. They work harder in general than women do, uh, at least at paid labor. Women, of course, work much harder around the home and, and with raising children and so on. And – in in England, even now, women pay 60% less money in taxes than men do. 
And so women got the vote independent of their need to protect their own property in the moment. And again, the smarter women knew that raising taxes would cut down their husband's property, which would reduce their inheritance. And I get all of that. But, you know, that's... um, Well, you know, if everyone was smart, maybe we could have a state. (laughs) But, you know, they're not, men or women. So that's number one. And number two is that women got the vote, which originally was supposed to be for men because men were subject to the draft. And so they said, look, because men can be subject to the draft, men can be forced at gunpoint to go off and fight for the state, men are going to be very interested in matters of the state because, A, they have a lot of property, so they're going to care about maintaining that property. They're going to be very interested in government because their property can be threatened by bad government policies. And number two, if governments screw up, men literally have to march into machine gun fire. And so this is one of the reasons why men have adapted to take a great deal of interest in political science, in military history, in history as a whole, in philosophy and so on, because these are all tools by which we understand and manage the power of the state. And if your property is subject to confiscation by the state and your very life and limbs are subject to confiscation by the state through the draft, well, you're going to take quite a bit of interest in government policy because it it fundamentally affects your resources, your life, your sexual market value, the whole thing, right? And this is why there are so many more men, one of the reasons why there are so many more men than women interested in things like political science, uh, at least the way it used to be taught, not this modern garbage, uh, and, and, and history and, and philosophy and, and all of this kind of stuff, because that's how men protect their interests from the power of the state. Whereas for, for women as a whole, the state is free cheddar. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to, if you have a machine that never breaks down, you don't need to study how it works. Whereas for men, the machine continually breaks down in that it takes their property and takes their lives, so they've got to keep an eye on it and learn how it works. That's why it's the founding fathers and the woman were sewing the flags. Again, I'm, I'm really generalizing and I hope I'm not being offensive, but that is fundamentally one of the reasons that it happened was when women gained political power, women became dependent on the state at the expense of men. And like all people who were guilty, they had to demonize those they were dependent on. And that's why sort of hostile to men feminism came along because women were becoming increasingly predatory on men. Insofar as if a woman goes to the state, if a woman goes to the politician and gets money from men through political force, she is receiving the benefit of taking money from men, but without actually providing the benefits back to men. Right. So, I mean, I assume, and you sound like a great woman to me, but I assume that when you were home with the kids, you worked hard, right? Yes. I mean, it's hard work, right? Yes, it, it certainly is. And you uh, maybe ran the household, maybe ran the bills, but, but you, <laughs> I mean, I know this. I'm married to a hardworking woman, God love her. And you don't, you know, it's not soap operas and bonbons all afternoon on the couch for you. I mean, you're not brushing the Cheeto dust off your boobs when you get up at four o'clock in the afternoon. You get up with the kids and it's all day, go, 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 right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I sort of feel like my days sometimes it's like, well, most times it's like I'm I'm loaded up, I'm shot out of a cannon and I just land in the bed, <laughs> you know, 16 hours later going, I don't know, something happened. <laughs> it was pretty cool, but I don't know what it was. 
So your husband paid for a lot of your bills, right? Your, your husband, uh, when you weren't working, when you were home, um, your husband paid your side of things and you provided fantastic, wonderful services back to him, right? Yeah. I mean, more or less that that's true. Um, but and I'm not I, I talking can tell about you, sex. I can tell you that my, <laughs> that my husband, you know, on days where I left him with the three kids and did my own thing, uh, he told me how he preferred, you know, how he thought it was easier to go to the work, to the job <laughs> than do this thing. So, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. No, there are, well, you know what it's like. I mean, I'm a stay at home dad. There are times when it's like, it's two 30 in the afternoon. I love my daughter and she's a great company, but you know, she's young and I want to think about other things, but you know, it's like two 30 in the afternoon. You're literally saying, okay, how many hours till bedtime? <laughs> and it looks like a bit of a long desert to get to that oasis of putting them in bed. Right. Yeah. That's so no, I, uh, I, and with three, like, I mean, Lord, uh, my, my hat is off to you. I mean, that's, you know, one is a challenge. Three well, is, I yeah. can't even imagine. Well, there were, th uh, the last was a batch of two. So that was unexpected. Oh, twins. Yeah, that's right. Oh, they're totally easy. I hear. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? They each cry each other to sleep and awake in that's opposite right, time. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I see so, your point. You're saying that if you bring in other people, uh, they're going to do the same thing from a different culture. I mean, it, it happened with. No, no, hang on. Sorry. Let me, let me finish up and then I'll, yeah. I'll be quiet. So because women got the vote without being subject to the draft, they can afford to be sentimental in matters of combat because they're not subject to the draft. And also, biologically, and this is going way back, way back. This is going back to like simian, ape-like monkey times. The traditional result of a conflict between two tribes, whether they're people or monkeys or whatever, the traditional outcome is if you're in tribe A and tribe B, and tribe B attacks tribe A. If tribe B wins... The males of tribe A are killed along with the children and the women are taken, the females are taken for reproductive purposes. And so a woman, obviously, you know, a female ape, or she loves her husband or whatever, but her genes aren't going to end if the battle is lost. Her genes will survive. And the argument could be made that her offspring will be improved because the tribe that won is more reproductively or is more martially or is more successfully fit than the tribe who lost. So there's actually kind of a weird, creepy, nasty, rapey upgrade for the woman or for the female ape if the males around her are beaten by other males. Whereas, of course, males are very concerned about incursions and intrusions and borders and so on because if, if they lose the fight, they're dead. And their children are dead, so their genes end completely. So genetically, women, of course, have an incentive to be concerned about incursions, but it's not a foundational biological incentive in the way that it is for men. And so when women take over the voting, and women in the West have taken over voting, they vote more, they're, they're more active uh, in this, uh, women have taken over the voting, and... I mean, Allison, you and I both know, you know this as well as I do, that if push comes to shove and fighting breaks out in Europe, 
Who's going to fight? Who's going to have to fight? Of the men. The men. Absolutely. And people make a lot of sounds about, well, we get women in combat. It's, come on. Come on. I mean, that's silly. The men are going to have to fight. And women don't have the same imperative to control borders and to be concerned about intruders. They just don't. Now, there are tons of exceptions. You please understand, you know, there's lots of exceptions to them. And Margaret Thatcher was a staunch British or UK, uh, was staunch uh, English nationalist. And so, I mean, tons of exceptions. I'm just talking the, the bell curve in general. So the sentimentality of women and the lack of threat that they experience relative to men when it comes to incursion is very significant. Because when I was a kid, I don't know if you ever heard this, you obviously sound a lot younger than me, but when I was a kid, do you know what I heard? Maybe <laughs> maybe you've heard this too. Boy, Alison, you know, if only women ran the world, it would be a paradise. You know, there'd be no war, there'd be no hunger, everybody would take care of each other, it would be lovely. Did you ever hear that when you were growing up? Oh, yeah. I think Merkel right. has thrown that all out the window. You th- sorry, what has? I, I think Angela Merkel has shown oh, yeah. that she's, you know, not competent. But it's not her. It's all of the Western politicians are responding to one thing and one thing only foundationally, and that is the political demands of women. That's, I mean, this is just constant. And women live this consequence-free life in the West. Because if things go bad... The government picks up the pieces. If, if they make false accusations against men, what are the negative repercussions? What are the negative repercussions? I mean, we've got these women in, in Canada. I did the show on this. Jean Gomeshi, this guy, I mean, they, they lied under oath. Is anything going to happen to them like happened to Mark Furman in the OJ trial? No, of course not. Of course not. And so women live this consequent free life. Oh, did my husband leave me? It's okay, I'll go on welfare. And in the States, it's like, oh, I'm in, am I not really going through that much of a great time with my husband? To hell with him. I'm going to go to the state and take half his stuff. If I don't like my husband anymore, I don't have to take the responsibility for choosing the wrong guy and be an example to other people on what not to do. No, I just run to the government. Consequence free life. In general. And when it comes to the migrants, what's happening is sentimentality, niceness, um, a lack of resolution, and a desire. See, women, when women become dependent on the state, they become very resistant to manifestations of state power. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's like, it's like the, to take an extreme example, like, the wife of the mafia head does not want to go on a ride along to the hit. Right? She wants to decorate her house. She wants to order all of that leopard skin stuff, you know, the bad skin that they talk about in Goodfellas, right? She doesn't want to come on the ride along to the hit. So she wants to get all this free stuff. She doesn't want to see where it comes from. Right? Yeah, no, she doesn't. And so. B- manifestations of state power are anathema to women and men who are dependent on the state because they don't want to know 
it's like meat eaters don't want to go to abattoirs, right? As Paul McCartney said, if, if every abattoir had a glass wall around it, there would be no meat eaters at all. Everybody would become a – it's gross to see, horrifying to see. Yeah, definitely. So the only way to have prevented this migrant crisis would have been to enforce the laws. To enforce the laws. And what would that have looked like? I ask you that seriously. What would have happened if they had enforced the laws not allowing the migrants in? Well, I think what happened before September, I mean, September is when Angela Merkel rolled out the red carpet and said, willkommen, right? But before that, there was a lot going on in Italy with the migrants from Africa there were thousands and thousands of you know people coming in. Uh, no, I get that. Day on but the to boat. prevent that, sorry to interrupt. To stop that, what would be required? Well, I think you know the someone should have maybe put a muzzle on the Pope, who said that you know not saving these people is tantamount to an abortion, right? Because he's then, no, no. I get all of that. I that that would not have stopped it. Well, turning the boats making the back. Popes, making the Pope stop talking would turn no boats back. I mean, the boats weren't sitting there saying, hey, what's the Pope saying? Is he saying we're good? Okay, let's keep going. If he says we're bad, we should head back. That's not how the migration works. No, but it made people, you know, feel the, the obligation and to be a good Christian and to help and save everybody. No, no, not everyone. And I know you've got a male friend who's a Christian. What I'm asking is, and this is sort of confirming the thesis, right? What I'm asking is, what would have been required physically from the state to turn the boats back? Well, well laws, of course. Or nope. It- Not laws. You already have laws. They didn't turn the pieces. The books didn't march down to the beach and now, do anything. Uh, enforcement of the laws. Having, which means what? Which means having the people turn the boats back physically. And how do they do that? Well, I guess either with a bigger boat, you you escort it back by dragging it or, you know, there apparently was, uh, I had read that between Italy and the Great, and Great Britain, there had been a secret agreement that they would actually, you know, destroy the boats before they left the dock in, you know, Africa so that they couldn't launch in the first place. But then someone found out, and then that, of course, didn't happen. Well, it's not, of course, right? So the guns would have had to come out. Yeah. See, all you're talking about is, is, and again, you know, I respect and, and love you for it, honestly. But what you're talking about is everything but what it is, which is the guns would have to come out, and people might have to get shot, because that's what laws are. Laws are comply or die. And it's every single law on the books is comply or die. Comply or we're going to escalate violence against you until you either do comply or you're dead. Because if you resist the escalation of state force that's designed to ensure your compliance, if you, you know, if, the, if you don't pay your taxes and you ignore the letters and you ignore the court dates, and then eventually the police are going to come to your house to take it away. And if you defend yourself, you, they're going to shoot you. The guns have to come out. And again, this is something that, I mean, the gun in the room, I've been talking about it for 
a decade. And people don't want to see the violence of the state. They do not want to see the guns come out because they're so dependent on it. And they're so guilty about it, at least the case-selected ones are, although there are not many of those who are dependent. But what would have happened across Europe if someone had come and said, they just set up big machine guns. I'm not saying I'm approving of all of this, you understand. I'm just talking about this is the reality of law. And said, you must turn back or we shoot. Well, I, I think it's more complicated than that because there, I think, is a sentiment that the problems that occurred in the Middle East are, you know, partly the responsibility of actions taken by the West in Syria, in Iraq, uh, in Libya. And so if you cause that, and then, of course, the result will be people fleeing. Okay, hang on. No, and I've, I'm sorry to interrupt. I've, I mean, I've heard this argument before. So then what people are saying is that their leaders are criminals. Well... Right? Because, look, just because one country bombs another doesn't mean, like... England bombed Germany in the Second World War, but England didn't say, well, while we're bombing them, let's take a whole, let's take millions of military-aged men into England because we feel bad for what we've done to Germany. So what, what you're saying is that it was unjust and immoral for your leaders, for the leaders in, in Europe, it was unjust and immoral for the leaders in Europe to destabilize, to arm, to bomb, whatever it was, to, to do that to these countries. It was evil for the leaders to do it, right? Yeah, except they, they don't think it was the European leaders, it was more the US. Well, then what? Then, 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 the, then there's no problem turning them back because the Europe didn't have anything to do with it, right? Yeah, but... yeah, Send them to America. No, I Let know. Americans, I, right? Look, I, I think there was a lot of public opinion and when that little boy drowned, all the fingers were pointing at Europe, saying that Europe is not doing enough to help and they are racist and of course that's a very sensitive uh, nerve on the Germans so that's why Merkel you know threw the doors and the red carpet out okay well, well hang on we'll get to the white guilt Nazi past racism crap in a sec not that it's crap that you're saying it but the arguments are so if Europe has responsibility for what's gone on in the Middle East and certainly Europe has had troops and, and weapons and arms sales and all that into the Middle Eastern countries and has joined and was a coalition with the U.S. invasion of Iraq, some European countries. So if people feel that they owe the migrants because the European leaders were doing wrong, then the European leaders need to be tried for war crimes. And that's how you solve the problem. You don't solve the problem by importing all the victims of the European war crimes. You, you, you solve the problem by... Uh, 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 striving for justice to be applied to the European leaders who have supported immoral policies. And then you get people in who will not do those policies. And you march in the streets and you, you post and you argue and you debate and you do whatever you need to do to bring the war criminals to justice. Yeah, well, that never happens. And right, because it's just easier to let them... It's all about laziness and inactivity which is why I pushed back so hard against your let's see stuff earlier. Not that I'm accusing you of it. You obviously acted and got to the U.S. But 
But this is the argument that, well, you know, we, we harmed their country. So it's okay. Well, either that was just, in which case you don't take the migrants, or it was unjust, in which case you have to try your leaders of war crimes and then take all their money and give it to the migrants. I don't know, whatever, right? Um, but you, you, you can't keep the leaders in who are so immoral. They've destroyed all these countries in the Middle East. You can't keep those leaders in and then invite all the people. Like, that makes no sense at all. Yeah, then you're destroying your own country as well. Yeah. Now, I mean, I mean, the Nazi guilt and, I mean, my God. Oh, my God. If you're going to talk about historical guilt, over 100 million slaves died at the hand of Muslims. Where's their historical guilt? Where's their Muslim guilt? Where they've taken over 60 countries largely by force of arms. And then they get so upset about Israel because there's one tiny sliver of the Middle East that they haven't been able to reliably conquer. It's like, oh, Israel is so bad because they took over a piece of the Middle East and they're imposing Jewish values. It's like, what about the 60 countries? Doesn't matter. That's different. We don't talk about that. Where, where's, the, where's the Muslim guilt? That's why I want to know. Taking over 60 countries, where's the Muslim guilt for female genital mutilation? Where's the Muslim guilt for beheadings and amputations of hands? Where's the Muslim guilt for the fact that one third of North African men admit to having raped a woman? Where's their guilt? Nazi crap is 70 years in the past, largely been atoned for. Germany's done wonderful things in the post-war period. It's been the center engine growth of the European, sustained the European Union far beyond what its zombie monstrosity should have continued for. So how on earth is Germany still guilty and the Muslims have nothing to feel bad about? Well, I can't answer that. <laughs> I mean, at least the Germans felt bad. Listen, I mean, I had cousins who came to visit me from Germany when I was a kid. They weren't even allowed to play with guns. There was such a guilt. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, I mean, the fact is that the Germans felt bad, to put it mildly, and um, reformed. Okay, that's something to be admired in a way. Yeah, I think it may did. have gone just a little too far, but, you know, it's something to admire in a way. But where's the where are the Muslims? Yeah. I have to admit the Germans have gone overboard. You think? Yeah. And, and, and this is the problem because they don't have the philosophers out there. And this is what I'm constantly nagging and nagging at people to do. Okay, if feeling really bad for historical crimes is a virtue, hold that standard to the Middle East. Do they ever, have they ever apologized to the black Africans? Have they ever apologized to the white Europeans? For scooping up tens of millions of them and killing them as slaves? I mean, slaves in the, in the Islamic world were treated far worse than slaves in the Americas and in the Western world. Where, is all, where are all of the imams and the leaders and all getting together saying, wow, you know, we, we really should think about reparations. We really should, uh, something, I don't know what, but we have just done terrible stuff in our history. Where is Islamic guilt for historical atrocities? Where is the big apologies and I'm not saying each individual Muslim in the present, but if you're going to have this standard that young Germans are responsible for what happened in Germany 70 years ago, long before they were born, 
Where is the Islamic apologies for invading Europe, getting to Spain and the gates of Vienna and driving like the Muslim Barbary pirates driving the Europeans inland for hundreds of years? Where's the apologies for that? None. None. So it's like, okay, we feel bad for our historical things we did that were historical and bad. But if you don't, guess what? You're not compatible to our culture. I mean, they don't even even feel bad about it. I've not seen a thing. You know, I do the truth about the Crusades. People are shocked. I do the truth about slavery. People are shocked. You, you can't be around Germany without hearing about war guilt. No, it's impossible. And I've never heard the guilt for historical atrocities coming out of the Muslim world. So how is this going to be compatible when one group has a fevered conscience and the other group seems to have no goddamn conscience at all? The prospects Sorry, aren't good. <laughs> no, no, no. Just the, well, I, I, the prospects aren't good for, for Europe. That's clear. Uh, passivity. Yeah. Angela Merkel said in 2010, at the beginning of the 60s, our country called the foreign workers to come to Germany, and now they live in our country. We kidded ourselves a while. We said, they won't stay. Sometime they will be gone. But this isn't reality. And of course, the approach to build a multicultural society and to live side by side and to enjoy each other has failed. Utterly failed. And again, a philosopher, if not an evolutionary biologist with honesty in a spine, could have told her this at the beginning. Because a philosopher will say, if tolerance is a value, then intolerant cultures must be kept out. It's as simple as that. It's, it, that sentence, that's it. If tolerance is a value, you must reject intolerant cultures. How, how complicated is that? It's not. I explained this to my daughter when she was five and a half years old, and she got it in about 20 seconds. It's not that complicated. If tolerance is a value, you cannot have intolerant cultures come into a tolerant environment. Yeah, I I think that's true. And I think that um, people don't realize, or maybe it hasn't been articulated in such a way, but I think everything has its limits. So, for example, we used to have, you know, freedom. A smoker had the right to smoke, but nobody, you know, really cared that his right to smoke impinged on the non-smoker's right to breathe fresh air. And then they finally said, well, we've got to now have respectful uh, freedom so that the smoker is allowed to smoke, but not where a non-smoker is. And I think that's the same with a democracy, because I've seen, you know, videos where the refugees are screaming that the Europeans are undemocratic because they're not allowing enough of, you know, the refugees to have their way and do this, that and the other thing. But it's, you know, there has to be a limit because, of course, when there will be a majority of, um, you know, refugees or people of Islamic uh, religion, then they will have Sharia law, and then the democracy is over. So, if you want to protect the democracy, you have to draw limits. 
And to point right. the finger and say, you're racist by doing that and you're not democratic if you do that, you know, it has to be respected that the democracy can only work in that way. But I think they know it and just want to, you know, use the opportunity to, you know, squash oh, out. They, like, you know, they, they, they know what makes white people do what they want. Yeah. How to make whitey dance. Use the word racism. Or- yeah, exactly intolerance or sexism i mean that's just how to how to make whitey dance you just get the social justice warrior terms and you know they've learned from the radical left who's primed white white people for that great if i want resources from white people i don't have to be i don't have to be so energetic that i get up and go and rob them directly i can just call them racist they'll give me stuff it's a great deal for everyone except the next generation angela merkel in 2015 said if so many people brave such hardship to come here This is a sign of approval for us. The world sees Germany as a country of hope and of chances. That hasn't always been the case. Guilt, guilt, guilt. She went on to say, the countries of Europe have to share the responsibility of caring for asylum seekers. Do you see all the female language in here? Brave such hardship, sign of approval. Caring for them. After all, universal civil rights were a founding element of the European Union. If Europe fails to cope with this, cope is a woman's word. If Europe fails to cope with this refugee crisis, it will no longer be the Europe we cherish. 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 I swear to God, if I didn't know a woman, I wouldn't even know what the goddamn word cherish meant, except for maybe a cool in the gang song. Well, I cherish is such a chick word. I'm sorry (laughs) to be so blunt, but this is not, you know, the moment I hear cherish, I'm like, okay, somebody's using dog whistle for female. But I don't believe that it's a male-female thing because I totally disagree with um, Angela Merkel. And my friend in Germany, who's very Christian, he totally agrees. So Yeah, and I bet you he was raised by women. Well, He was raised by female teachers. He had female teachers throughout all of his early childhood. And uh, he lives in a world dominated by female voters where the government does what women want. And uh, maybe he had a priest, you know, you know, who was male, but he lived in a female-dominated universe, as all men in the West do, almost without exception. All men in the West have grown up in female-dominated environments. Okay, but you know what? A male-dominated environment is Sharia law, and I think that's pretty bad. What? What do you mean a male-dominated environment is Sharia law? What are you talking about? Well, it's it's a male Was there culture. Sharia law in the 19th century in the West? No, no. But I guess what I'm saying is today you'll see – I mean it's, it's obvious that that is an example of male dominance. And I don't think that's very good. But I, I mean I didn't mean to – Wait, think- hang on, hang on. Sorry. I, I just missed that. What was an example of male dominance? Well, I guess under Sharia law – the woman is, you know, a second class, actually, I would call it a third class citizen. And it's basically a male, you know, a patriarchal society. Yeah, but no, that's not male. That's not male. That's, that's Muslim, not male. The defining characteristic of that is not penises, but ideology. Because what you're saying is that all penises want Sharia law. Now, I've not talked to a large number of penises in my life. I've known one well. But uh, it's not a penis thing. It's an ideology thing. And so what's happening is I'm pointing out that where the West is is in a female-dominated society. And the reason I talked about this earlier 
Angela, which was to say, oh, if only women ran the world, it would be a paradise. Well, women are running the Western world in general, and it's a mess. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Men running the Western world wasn't that great either. I mean, there were two world wars and stuff like that. So I'm not so – look, the problem is the state. The problem is the state. The pro it's not like women are bad or, or men are bad. It's not like that. But, you know, men plus the state, we all get that there were huge problems with that. But women plus the state, there are just different sets of huge problems with that. I, ag I agree. I mean, certainly what she has done is, is a catastrophe. So she went on to say, 2015, if we don't succeed in fairly distributing refugees, fairly distributing, that's women talk. Fairly distributing refugees, then of course the Schengen Agreement question will be on the agenda for many, for many. German thoroughness is super, super, but right now what we need is German flexibility. Flexibility, also a woman's word, uh, and yoga teachers. Um, she went on to say there can be no intolerance of those who question the dignity of other people. There can be no tolerance of those who question the dignity of other people. There is no tolerance of those who are not ready to help, where for legal and humanitarian reasons, help is due. Okay, so no tolerance of those who question the dignity of other people. So I'm a reporter and I say, well, does Islam respect the dignity of non-Islamic people? Is that in the ideology? Is that in the practice? And so she would have to answer one way or the other. It would be literally, this is what's so goddamn frustrating about the world, is these can all be 30-second conversations that nobody has that would illuminate and clarify things to the point where even a five-year-old could understand it. She says, there can be no tolerance of those who question the dignity of other people. Okay. Do Islamic countries ever offend the dignity of women or children or non-Islamics? And she would have to say, well, yeah, they're... They, they, they don't. They do question the dignity. Okay, then we can't tolerate them. You said there can be no tolerance of those who question the dignity of other people. Does Islam question the dignity of other people? Yes. So we can't tolerate them. It's simple. I don't listen. Like, this is so annoying. <laughs> it's not like people got to get a PhD and, and, and complex mathematical algorithms and, and understand the theory of relativity. This is like 50 seconds max. German president Wachem Gauck. I don't know. <laughs> I think I just spit up airball. To understand the opportunity of immigration, more Germans need to say farewell to their image of a nation that is very homogenous, predominantly German-speaking, Christian, and fair-skinned. Reality has become much more multifaceted. I think we need to redefine nation as a community of diverse people who accept common values. All right. So, the president is saying, well, they all have to accept common values. So, I would ask this guy, is it easier for white Christian Germans to have white Christian babies and to teach them German values and have them grow up speaking German and have them, uh, you know, same IQ, uh, ethnicity, and, and so on? Is it easier to do that? Or is it easier to import low IQ, rapey people from North Africa who don't speak your language, pay them on welfare, have them sit in ghettos, not integrate into the community, is that how you get them to accept common values? Because you have a choice. Every migrant that comes in is a European who won't be born. That is a basic economic reality because resources are finite. All the money that is being shoveled towards the migrants is money not available for Europeans to have kids. And I don't care. The race of the Europeans doesn't matter. But every single migrant that comes in is one less European who's going to be born. They're not adding 
to European society. They're displacing European society because the smart Europeans are saying, ah, it's too expensive. That's why the birth rate is so low, because welfare keeps going up. So, uh, well, one of many reasons. So again, these are very easy arguments to counter. This is not even philosophy 101. This is playground 100. And so... The, the, the absence of philosophy, the absence of biological knowledge of human biodiversity, the absence of understanding of the theological commandments of Islam, well, ignorance, if you remain ignorant for long enough about important enough issues, nature just wipes you out. That is a certainty. Yeah. And again, I'm sorry, I certainly didn't mean to make it men versus women. And if men were in charge of the state, everything would... No, the state corrupts everyone who comes in contact with it. It just happens to be more tits, less balls. Who's being corrupted these days? Yeah, well, they've made a fine mess, I must say. In Sweden and Germany, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Tragic. Well, I just said, I'm, I'm not saying I've obviously... I'm not saying I've answered this perfectly or completely. I don't anyone can. But this is a reasonably decent way to begin to look at the problem. Again, it's not comprehensive or everything, but I think it's sort of the important stuff that I think of. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a, a great call. You are absolutely welcome back anytime. It was a great pleasure. Okay, my pleasure too. Thanks. Thank you. All right, well, up next is Florian. Florian wrote in and said... Could shifting the money creation process from banks to individuals be the best basis for a better human society in the future? That's from Florian. Hello, Stefan. Hi, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm fairly invigorated, actually, by your previous conversation uh, also. Yeah, tell me, how was that? I, I felt it was... Exciting until the very end when I felt she yes. kind of checked out. Well, but, you I'm, know. I'm from Amsterdam, of course, so the Germans are right across the border uh, here. That's like, uh, you know, an hour and a half drive from here. And uh, I must say that I actually feel the complete opposite in this one uh, regard, because uh, um, my grandfather actually was about 18, nine years old when the Germans came over here. Uh, for the little six-year vacation in the uh, 1940s-45. And uh, he was drafted into the German army, but uh, uh, refused that hit, went into the uh, armed resistance, and for six years shot and sabotaged everything German they could get their hands on. Uh, He was actually one of the guys that had the lamps to signal down the English planes and, uh, you know, so every uh, other night in the week, he'd be out there signaling food, medical supplies, weapons, ammunitions, uh, stuff like that. And, you know, they came here with a similar intention, but maybe in a much more militarized way as, you know, some of the Islamic people that are coming here also to my country now. And uh, they were here for a few years, but in the end, we ran them out of the country with their tails you know, behind their, uh, between, between their behinds. And we solved that problem. And I, I think... Different, also- different situation, though. Very different situation. So a couple of, couple of things. Sorry, just a couple of things. Of course, no, yes, shut sure. up. <laughs> I, I, I mean, these stories, and it's my ancestors too, but these stories about how Europeans used to be, it's like 1945, the end of testicles on the European continent or something. I don't know if they all, all the manly men died off. I don't know if I'm putting you in this category necessarily me, but 
just based on a bunch of stuff I've read and even some callers. Number number two, number two, there was a a, a clear war with uniforms, a chain of command, identifiable enemies, and you had a place to send the Germans back to. Yes, yes. That's not, and they weren't sort of living among you in welfare. True, true. It's a very different situation, but just for and my, for you my... weren't fighting. You weren't potentially fighting women and children. True, true. Also, also. But still, I like to think that, at least in my country, Germany is a very different situation. But in my country, I think that the public outrage over what's happening is very close to bubbling over and into, you know, picking politicians or changing current politicians into, you know, creating circumstances legally that will, uh, you know, set a lot of people off who, who really are ready to do something, to speak up, who get more and more in the face of uh, Islamic people who don't respect our laws. And, uh, and you can feel it. You know, there's also a more humility, actually. I notice in Amsterdam, at least, among many Muslims, where they were very much in the face of people. And now that is kind of changing. And some of them are, are seeing like, hey, we, we went over some line and people are pushing back a little bit. And I don't know how it will end. But it is something that for me personally, I feel that, uh, no, you know, we are still a majority. And if it, if it was down to me and I think, you know, also a, a fair number of people that I know who have maybe a different um, mentality when it comes to rolling up your sleeves and doing stuff uh, that, you know, we, we will not give up without a fight. Let's put it that way. Or I won't, I, I think. Well, good for you. And I, and I, I appreciate that as a, as a whole. Um <laughs> What do you think that the solutions are? Well, I think that in the end, it comes down to politics. You know, you have Trump over there in the U.S., uh, who is, uh, for all his faults, uh, introducing a healthy sense of masculinity and, uh, and a sense of passion and a sense of not being afraid to speak out into the political arena there. And you see all these you know, lawyers and, and bureaucrats responding with the usual, oh my God, here's someone who just says what he thinks and I don't know how to handle this. And uh, and I think we, you know, we're creating circumstances where someone like that hopefully will stand up in our country also, who will, you know, invigorate the, the silent or still silent uh, uh, masses. And I think it is a majority in my country at least, that is very, very ready to say, hey, you can stay here if you respect the laws, if you integrate, we're absolutely fine with that. But it is our country and it is our laws. And you can push us to some extent and we will flex a little bit and see what's going on. But there is a point where it stops. You know, that, that's kind of my. Uh, my OK, but, but what does it mean? What does it mean to integrate? That, that's my first question. I've got one after that. But so what does it mean if they integrate? Well, I think the solution lies in the fact that we are allowing immigrants to isolate themselves, so to concentrate themselves. And people integrate when they have to immigrate, integrate, you know, when they're forced to deal with the natives every day, when they're forced to learn the language, when they're forced to work, you know, when there's pressure on them to actually do that. That's when people integrate, not when you ask them nicely or when you provide them with opportunities to avoid the native culture, which we all do when we go abroad. You know, we go to the white neighborhoods and the white hotels, and we, we do the same to some extent. I understand where that comes from. 
But if you want people to integrate, you have to force them to do it. And in my country, we're a lot further on that road. You know, we, we've had 10 years ago, we had incidents uh, with violence where our politicians said, oh, yeah, the women just need to be more careful. And, you know, we had the same backlash that you see now in Germany. We had that 10 years ago. And uh, a lot of European countries say, ah, oh, Holland has gone from very liberal to very right wing. And it's true. And it's a reaction to this same idea of freedom that we had, that the Germans had also. But the Germans are 10 years behind in their shifting uh, in how they deal with the, especially the Islamic culture, which just brings a set of extra problems. Uh, and it's not all bad. I mean, there, there really are good people among them. Okay, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know what you mean. But so, what does it mean to integrate? Does that mean can they be uh, dedicated to uh, Islam and integrated into Western society? No, I, I think that at least in this country, it goes hand in hand with the process of secularism. You know, if you if you look at our culture, of course, we have lots of religions here, especially Amsterdam. It's like, you know, Tortuga or something. It's a very wild uh, place with lots of nationalities and religions and stuff. But the core of it is that all the people that live here for a while, especially if they live here for a few generations, they lose their their genuine their genuine religion. You know, they they secularize to a large uh, degree, because you cannot live here without being confronted with every other culture every day, and that brings, uh, you know, it, it educates people that you don't have the only truth, and when you hit people with that long enough and hard enough, it starts to sink in. I think, to some to some extent, and that is our culture. I think is to be secular, you know, to use science, and you can think about where you're going to go after you die in whatever way you want, because that's, in the end, the essence of where, where all the religions differ. You know, how do you get into the afterlife? What's your way to get there? And you can do whatever you want. But in the end, living good is about treating your neighbor well, accepting each other's differences, working with each other's differences. And there can be some conflicts about that sometimes. That's okay. But in the end, you have one dominant culture. That's our Dutch culture. And that's, that is what, that's what is leading, you know. And we are moving more and more towards making a stand on that. And we're, we're slowly on defining that. And these questions that you rightly ask, like, what is your culture? are being asked more and more, and people are starting to define that more and more. Good. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of struck me that if I set up some sort of philosophy that demanded the substitution of Western law with some other hostile to Western law legal system, mm -hmm. and I started uh, putting together places where people would gather and, and all, I mean, uh, that would be illegal. Yes, it, it's illegal to um, in most countries. I don't. It's illegal to have an organization dedicated to the overthrow of the existing legal system. Yes, yes. And so I just uh, <laughs> I find it, of course, a little bit uh, confusing why this is missed uh, as a whole, uh, given the ideology. But anyway, you're um, completely right. But we have a law, for example, that we're not building any more mosques. You know, this is something that five years ago it would have been absolutely impossible. But right now, people are like in several cities like Amsterdam, 
they have implemented this now. So there were a few mosques that were under construction and they're still completing those. But other than that, the government has now put a complete ban on building any more mosques because they just realized that, hey, wait a minute, we're building these things often with money from you know Saudi Arabia or wherever. And we're just seeing that time and time and again, these become places where you know, this religion is undermining our secular values and they're teaching the wrong things and we just don't want that anymore. You know, they, they've banned having foreign uh, Islamic priests. I don't know what they call their priests actually, but, you know, they would have this Arabic priest who come from Morocco or Saudi Arabia preaching, uh, you know, they've kind of been hired and they'd move to Holland and then they'd preach here in Arabic. Now they're forcing uh, people to be trained in Islam here, so they're cre creating Dutch, sort of a little bit secularized Islamic schools, where the government puts pressure to take some of the you know more bad stuff out of Islam and teach a, you could call it like a Dutch version of Islam, and people have to finish the Dutch Islamic you know university or whatever they do before they can teach in a Dutch mosque. Now these are things that are underway. Uh, it's not all good. I, I'm sure there's still flaws in that system that can be exploited by those who want to do bad. But they are coming hard, down hard or relatively hard, I think, compared to most other European countries right now on figuring out ways to make this work, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know how it works, of course, where you are, but... Um, these uh, the, the radical mosques and so on uh, that are that are talked about I don't, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm no experience or um, idea about how this works legally. But to me, it would be a very simple thing. It's a very, very simple thing to figure out. There are um, Muslims who speak Arabic, who work for the CIA, who work for the FBI, who work for various forms of law enforcement and and uh, Homeland Security, and, and I don't know what the equivalents may be there. But um, again, this is not a moral question. This is sort of a practical question for me, yeah. is that it would be very simple, I think, to have these people go into mosques to record what the imams are saying and to report on it. I mean, if you're speaking publicly, I don't think you can be that upset if people record you. We're not talking about going into people's houses. Yes, but they do that, actually. They, they, so they been... go in. And, and so, yeah, so in the States, and, and, you know, in the States, they could just, you know, go, go and, and record and, and make sure nothing too weird is going on. And um, it seems fairly easy to do. But um, I don't know if anything's really going on because I've not heard anything about that. And my concern is that, you know, there's two things. Number one is that they may not be that happy with what they hear. And number two, this is particularly the case in Europe, though it's certainly true to a smaller degree in North America, is that the solution to um, uh, Islamic criminality, of course, the Western solution is to throw people in jail. Mm -hmm. But as you probably well know, jails in Europe are one of the greatest hotbeds of radicalizing yeah. Islamic people. And so putting them in jail is sort of like sending them to a terrorist training camp, to put it in a sort of extreme way. And of course, it's not true for everyone. But some of the recent terrorists in Europe uh, went to jail for relatively small misdemeanors. And then, of course, they're set upon uh, by um, the, the radicals, uh, Muslims in jail. And of course, the guards don't speak Arabic, so they don't know what the heck's being said. And uh, they get radicalized in there. So the traditional punishment 
of the West, which is to send someone to jail, <laughs> seems to be like it achieves the exact opposite of what people want. And so what do you do? What do you do if sending people to jail can can substantially contribute to making them much, much worse and much more dangerous? I mean, there's not a lot of backup plans there, right? I mean, what else are you going to do? Well, actually, I, I can give one insight into this, which, um, like, uh, you, I, I watched, of course, many of your uh, your shows before, and you make some very good insights into the Islamic society there. And uh, I take an experience, because I actually know how my grandfather became a terrorist. You know, in, in the eyes of the Germans, he was an active terrorist. And I know the moment he became an active terrorist, because he, he, he wrote, uh, you know, several books about it. And this happened for him, like he was living in a, in, a, in a small rural village. The Germans came. At some point, he was drafted to go and fight for the Germans in the German army. He refused this, and he hid. You know, he had to go sort of into the fields, in the greenhouses. They had several hiding places there, and he hid there. And a few days after he actually fled from that, he was still kind of thinking, shall I go? What, what shall I do? They were trying to get back at some armed thing that the resistance had done a week before, and they strung up. They, they literally hanged three people from that village in revenge. And they said, you know, you guys from the resistance, you have to give yourself up, or we will hit, we will just hang three of your people, and they did this. They actually hung three people, and the resistance didn't come out, and these were just casualties of war. And he wrote in a book, when that happened, when I saw you know, people, good people who had done nothing wrong, hanging there, a, a rage, a, a passionate rage erupted in me. And before, of course, everybody in the village knew who was the resistance guys. Everybody knew, but not everybody was doing anything. And they asked my grandpa several times, like, hey, man, join us, come do something with us. And until that moment, he had not been active. But this thing happened. And that's the moment when he, he literally describes in his book, that's when I went over to the brothers that were leading the resistance. And I said, you know what, whatever I need to do, whatever, whatever we need to do to, to hurt these fuckers, I will do it. And that's what happens. And I think that for most of the Islamic people, the, the parallel is that their families are very connected. You know, they interbreed with cousins and stuff. It, you know, it, it influences their IQ. You talk about this also. But their families are incredibly related. You know, from Iran to Iraq, they, these families are very sprawling. They're everywhere. So basically all of them have personal casualties in the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Morocco, wherever. All these Arabs are so connected. They all have an uncle or somebody who died in this war with essentially us, with the US, but by extension, Europe. So to them, we are really that personal enemy that did something personal to them. Then we have the strange situation that we say, come over, we, we will save you, we will, we will do something. So we're this strange uh, country that has this kind of uh, psychotic two natures. On the one hand, we're bombing and fighting them. On the other hand, we say, Come, we will rescue you. you will, we will help. Come here. We'll give you a good life. We'll help you. And they arrive here. And I think most of them are like my dad was. They're hurt. They're not liking the, you know, European-American invaders at home. But they're not really there where they want to really take action. They're kind of still 
peaceable, like we all are. We just want to have a good life for you know, our family, our friends. We don't want to fight if we can avoid it. But then they're already here in a Dutch mosque. They're, they're part of the community here. And every day they hear cousins that say, you know what, my village got bombed or this happened back in Iraq or this happened back home. And then something happens like that hanging that my grandfather went through and they feel that same anger. And then of course, they all know who the active guys are, just like everybody in my grandfather's village knew who the active guys were. You know, that's what happens. That's it. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of what you're saying. And, and w one of the big problems, of course, is that, you know, I, I sound, of course, I guess, negative towards uh, Muslims and Islam. And I, I don't actually genuinely feel that way. Um, but, and, and one of the, you know, I have huge sympathy for the Muslims who, um, who have suffered so enormously under Western governments, uh, at least for the last, uh, it's close to a hundred years now, certainly since, um, the end of the, uh, first world war when the European powers sort of carved up the Middle East and so on. And, but, but the people in the West and, and I say people in the East, I know this is a silly, but. The Christians and the Muslims live in different worlds because the Muslims see the bodies hanging, as you, as you put it, right? They, they, they see. I mean, you can go on, online. We've had to do this. God help us for, you know, we did a presentation called Iraq, a Decade of Hell. And see, seeing what's happened to Muslim communities in the Middle East as a result of Western aggression is... Ugh, you know, I can completely understand where they say, well, what, you call us the terrorists? Look at the body count. Yeah. It's like a thousand to one. Yeah. Muslims to Christians. I, I mean, I, I get that. And the Europeans don't look at those bodies. They don't know those people. They don't have the same connection to those people. But as you say, I mean, the, the Muslims have deep, intimate connection to... Yeah. To, to these to these people who are dead and and shredded and and broken and God I mean horrendous horrendous what the West has done to to the Muslim world is is brutal and horrendous and and it is far more destructive than what Islam has done to the Western world like by orders of magnitude mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I I get all of that and and this is why it's not a great idea to try and have the two cultures mix when one of them is looking at the actual results of Western atrocities in the Middle East and the other group is doesn't even know like they're just two different worlds literally looking at you know one person looks at the world and sees you know rainbows and social justice warriors flying through the air on butterfly wings and the other one sees bunker busters and shredded children's parts flying through the air and it shatters their hearts yes yes so that's that dichotomy of experience is um you know and and the war that is ignored always comes home right and yeah, yeah. The Europeans and, and the people in the West, you know, I've been trying to wake people up to the aggressions of Western governments, uh, particularly overseas. I've talked about this endlessly. Mm -hmm. um, it is brutal. You know, we have Muslim listeners who, who listen to the show and appreciate it. And, you know, the way that we're going to deal with the problems of Islam uh, and the problems of all irrational ideologies, you know, socialism and, and, uh, and so on, is we, we bring better arguments uh, to smart people in those communities and then those smart people in those communities to the degree that they could screw their courage to the sticking place will help spread those better arguments. That's how we spread reason. And the history of the West and the Middle East, I, I've been sort of working on it uh, a bit here and there. But very briefly, mm -hmm. um, 
it, it all goes back to, to governments. Because of the First World War, everybody realized that if you didn't have control over the oil, you couldn't survive a war. Right. One of the reasons why the West started grabbing all these oil rich countries in the Middle East was because the First World War, uh, because there's so much machinery involved and so much oil is taken to produce uh, the, the war machines and to produce the guns and to produce the tanks and planes and all, all run on oil, all run on gas. So you had to have oil if you needed a war. This is one of the things. And, and then, of course, America and other countries started building all these huge roads, which created a car culture, which created this necessity for extra oil. Uh, this is more after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. At the same time as the Green Movement exploded, which reduced capacity to produce oil domestically. And basically what happened was a huge amount of resources, money and, and weaponry flowed from high IQ countries to low IQ countries because of the artificial subsidies and controls put in by governments. It caused this huge tipping point. Low IQ societies generally don't have a lot of resources because they're not that smart. High IQ societies have more, but this was a way of tipping huge amounts of resources to low IQ societies. And it all was a giant government program. And it was a huge mess. And as a result, there is this obsessive control. And, and, and to, you know, the, the Middle East is like a playground for the Western sociopaths to test their goddamn weapons on it. I mean, it's unbelievable just what goes on uh, in the Middle East and how many uh, Muslims have been shredded, destroyed, broken, dismantled, poisoned, irradiated, and genetically destroyed by sociopathic, largely Christian Western leaders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I, I get all of that. And I, you know, I don't mean to sound like, oh, that they're bad and we're great. That's never been part of my perspective. I, I know that. I know that. I, 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 so I just I yeah. wanted to point that out. But I, I really appreciate what you're saying about, you know, the people have the, the, the bodies are provocative. Of course they are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's uh, like I, I, I don't use it as an excuse for them. I, I really I make that distinction, though. Like, no, I, a, reason, I, a reason is not an excuse. Exactly, I mean, just pointing out a reason. Is yes, not making that, an that's the thing. And I think that's where. Uh, the, the the discourse sort of breaks down politically is that all people talk about these days is, yeah, well, they have a reason to bomb and stuff. And that's, of course, not enough. Like, of course, I want to understand, uh, and, it's, and it's all over the news, so then it kind of pulls you to get at least some information. And, uh, and you want to understand them to some point so you can have some empathy of where they come from. But then the solution is to also be comfortable in your own culture and to stand for what we stand for and to have a powerful voice as individuals and say, look, I know that my state also you know, has supported different things in the past and maybe has had a real share in the body count, as you so eloquently uh, described. Uh, but that's not the majority of the actual people here. And I think that somewhere between that empathy on the one hand and, you know, understanding that, of course, all the, you know, Islamic people in Holland, you know, even the non-active ones kind of know who are the shady figures or, you know, who you could ask if you wanted to do that. Of course, they know all of that. And of course, they're not going to tell a cop and they're not going to tell on their own. I get all that. Um, so you have to know that and you have to respect that and you have to work with that and you have to have secret agents, you know, doing their thing, trying to get there. But on the other hand, you also have to just be tough and be smart and use facts. You know, I, I read my... Well, and, and sorry, last thing is it's, it's also not all about U.S. foreign policy or European foreign policy, right? Like this, this terrible bombing in Lahore where they killed, like in Pakistan, where they... Uh, sent uh, a suicide bomber in to blow up a bunch of Christian kids in a playground, mm -hmm. uh, killing 70 people, 73, I think, and, and wounding 320 or more 
that was not because the less than 2% of Christians in Pakistan were significantly influencing foreign policy. No, uh, it's, not, it's not all about foreign. It doesn't help. And, and, but until this aspect of the, um, of the ideology is dealt with, um, until there is a commitment to um, spread by the word and not by the sword, um, it's just not... We, I, can have, I can have all the sympathy in the world for the Muslims who are being destroyed by Western government, and I do, I really do. At the same time, I can recognize fully the absolute oppositional nature between many aspects of Western civilization and many, as, and, uh, many aspects of uh, Islamic uh, culture. Absolutely. I, I, uh... Pakistan did not bomb Syria. Pakistan did not invade Iraq. The Christians certainly had nothing to do with it. And boom, off they go anyway. So yeah. it is not... Uh... Anyway, listen, we, we're we either going to deal with your question or i got to move on yeah, to the yeah, next yeah, quarter. Yeah, let's make like a bridge uh, towards that. Last um, yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, of course, my question was uh, um, shifting the money creation process from banks to individuals uh, might be the best basis for a better, more beautiful human society in the future. And uh, yeah, let me just ask what you mean by that question. Yes, well, I was going to actually elaborate wait, wait, a little wait, bit on sorry, it. Sorry, let, let me finish. When you say banks, do you mean government, cartel, central bank protected nonsense? Do you uh, mean like... Uh, no, government stuff? No, no. I really mean that we, we have a monetary system and uh, the only way that new money comes into the general populace, let's say, is through bank loans or business loans. That's the only way. No, 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 no. No, listen, you try setting up a bank and creating money. How's that going to go? Just of your own. Florian uh, dollars. Well, say... Florence. New Sorry. money... <laughs> Florian is actually, but uh, that's okay. Um, well, well, what actually happened is someone buys a house, goes to the bank, the bank puts the house on the books as an asset, and then they just type the amount of number that they're going to give you, and they extend no, it. No, but that's, sorry, Florian, that's not banks. That's the government. Well, okay, yeah, okay, sure. It is the government, but it's, you know, if I do that in Holland, then I go to a commercial bank that does this process. No, no, you can't, you can't do this. You, you can't set up your own bank. Create your own money and have people use it as general currency and pay their taxes with it. And you, you can't. It's, it's called counterfeiting. It's illegal. Yeah, okay. But I, I think that we are, uh, like, I, I think that we're, we're arguing definitions then. Uh, so no, no, we're arguing free market versus force. Yes. But, but, um, what, what? So I have no, like, first of all, money, there you go. As far as money creation goes, I'm not that comfortable with money creation as a whole. Like the Bitcoin thing where you max out at 21 million Bitcoins and, and whatever. Money money creation, the, the way that it used to work was money was not created. Money was mined, right? Your gold and silver yeah. and, and bronze and so on. And so money was not created in the past before sort of fiat currency. And then, you know, in ancient Rome, they corrupted all the currency and they did it again during the revolution in France. And they did it again during the Civil War in in um America and they've just you know done it many many times, yeah. but money should not be see, money should never be just created uh, on a whim with no limitation whatsoever. Exactly. And uh, so I don't like you're saying should we should we take this destructive process and give it from banks to individuals? It's like should we blindfold banks and have them shoot randomly in crowded squares, or should we let individuals <laughs> do it? It's like well, I'd actually kind of prefer none of the above. No, that, that's really not what I mean. But that's why I say maybe I, I can elaborate on what I what I mean by the question a little bit, uh, uh, so you understand uh, uh, what I mean. Because uh, what I'm getting at more is that, um, to to my mind, as I understand it, of course we have a fiat 
currency. So the currency itself is is, is just worthless paper, basically. Um, and much of it is even digital, so it's not even paper these days. And the way that you know the central banks sort of work is that the, the, the creation of money, so the amount of money in the total Dutch economy, for example, I don't know how many billions it is, but there's a finite amount of money in that system, yes? And what we have now, the, the, the type of poverty that we have is, my philosophy is that in our world, there is an infinite amount of work. You know, there, there is no shortage of things to be done, ever. There's always a completely infinite amount of things that we can still do, that we can discover, work on, whatever. It's infinite. So if we have a couple of people in my country, we have a housing shortage of about 500,000 houses right now. Um, so there's 500,000 people who would love to have a house. There is plenty of unemployed people, uh, people that work in construction, architects, uh, uh, secretaries, Secretaries who could manage them, managers, painters, builders, interior designers, you name it. All those people are there and out of a job. So we have space enough in my country to build buildings. So we're in a situation where we have everything. There's demand, everything. The one thing that's lacking is there's simply not enough money or the, the, the way that our system distributes the actual money that is in the system uh, gives the government and banks as sort of a you know a system of government the ability to say who gets the money. They decide everything that happens. Because if I want to create some new business, I have to go to the bank and say, you know what, I have an idea, I want 10,000 euro for this. And across from me on a table, someone will say, well, we will either give you some money for that or not. And they will be the sole arbiter. So I can have this whole group of people who want a house but if the bank says or the government says we're not going to loan you any money for that, then the whole process will not happen. And I totally see the, you know, the, the workings of the market, the fact that people have infinite needs. You've talked about this also. So I know that. OK, we so, sorry, sorry. I'm, I just, you know, I, okay. people always get mad at me for interrupting, but no, people no, no. say so no. much and don't give me a chance to respond that okay. I have to yes. I have to stop you. Um, so there's a half a million people, you said, who want houses. Mm -hmm. There's room to build them, and there's people who are unemployed who are able to build houses, right? Yes. All right. So the reason that houses aren't being built and is if people can afford houses and people are able to make houses and people want houses and houses aren't being built, it's because the government is interfering with the market. No, in my example, not. Like, it's not so much that the government is is interfering. You could say it that way. But my point is more, you have just a finite. The problem is we have a finite amount of money. Because it's a finite amount, anything that has a finite amount, people will hoard. So we have millionaires in my country. We have billionaires in my country. And if money is just an exchange medium to say, you know what? I got some eggs, you got some chickens, I don't need chickens, so I'll give you my eggs, but I want some money for it so I can buy what I actually want and I don't want your damn chickens. That's what you need money for. It's just an exchange medium. And if people could create that 
themselves to a certain limited amount, and I have some ideas for how to systemize that also, then you never run into the problem where everything's there except the exchange mechanism. That's what I mean. Is because the government is in charge of creating more or less money, because they, they set it at a finite amount, people will hoard it. So a billionaire... Oh, hang on, hang on, okay. hang on. Do you, do you think that if the government just created more money that people would be wealthier? No, no, not if the government would do it, because it would still be a finite amount. The, the, the problem no, it doesn't, is, okay, but, but if, if anybody just created more money, typed, you know, whatever they wanted into their own bank account, yes. you get that that wouldn't make anyone richer, right? It would just cause inflation. No, uh, well, actually, no, it wouldn't. But I'll, I'll give you a practical example, because we can get right, right into the practical system of it. So the system Wait, is... Wait, are you saying, hang on, are you saying that all other things being equal... Mm-hmm. A doubling of the money supply would not cause inflation? Uh, no, actually, I'm not talking about making more money, uh, increasing the money supply at all. What I'm saying is that we take our current monetary system, the whole, the whole lock, stock and barrel of it, the, all, all the systems inside of it, and we take a completely different system, which works much, much simpler, but in a very, very different way. So different that it will wreck your brain to just think about it. That's why I really wanted to ask you this question. Basically, you have a... Well, you know that you haven't actually asked me a question yet. Yes, well, right? I'm you, gonna, you, I'm you're doing ask... a lot of speeches, but you haven't actually okay. asked I'll, me a I'll question. Ask you which that I now. So I have a wallet and you have a wallet. Yes, and we want to exchange. And in both our wallets, there's a zero. Because in the total system, there's zero money. Now, I want you to do some work for me, and it's going to take you one hour, yes? So I give you one hour of my time, say, in exchange. So you now have one in your wallet, and I have minus one. The complete system still has zero, but you have one, I have minus one. And you can spend that one with anybody else in the system, and they can... Wait, sorry, is this, is this to assume that our labor has completely equal value? No. Like one hour of your labor is exactly the same as one hour we of my could, labor? We could still negotiate. So if you say, look, I uh, want to uh, have three hours from you because I think that my hour in this particular expertise is worth three of yours, we can negotiate, contracts still work, everything else that you know makes the free marketplace still works. It's just a different type of currency, let's say. Let's say it's kind of based on a basic human hour, so we all have the same hour sort of value. But if you're a dentist and you study, your hour may be worth twice or three times that of someone else. And you can still negotiate that. You're free to do that in any way you want. But aren't you, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I don't mean to wallet dot dat you, bro, but aren't you just talking about Bitcoin? No, no, not Why? I, I'm not very familiar with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin, again, it's a finite amount. You have to mine it. Not everybody's able to mine it. So you still have a finite amount of money. And this is you have infinite money, but it's still limited by the fact that you can only get the money by doing something for somebody else. So, but, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, Florian, like, because, you know, look. I don't mean to lump you in with another category of people because I, I, I get you put a lot of thought into this. Mm-hmm. But I'm an anarchist. Yes. And what that means is that when people come to me with, here's how everything should work, you know what my answer is, right? Yes, but that's not what I'm saying. No, no, you are. You're saying, here's this system that is better. No. But the whole point of anarchy is that Whatever system is going to be better, you know, if, you, if you've got a great system, go build it and, and compete with the other systems. And I don't need uh, – I, I, like, you're basically trying to pitch me an entrepreneurial idea, which is fine. But, I, you know, this is not Dragon's Den, right? I'm, I'm not an investor. 
So you're trying to pitch me an idea that you have for some sort of currency, which, you know, is great. But, you know, the whole point is that since I don't believe that any state can morally initiate the use of force, which I don't think any state is eventually morally justified, Mm -hmm. then what you're doing is you're pitching to me a business idea, not a state-based solution, right? Because if you're talking about a state-based solution, then I just, I don't care what it is. It's bad. Well, you know, I, I mean, it's not it's a like ra- all rape-based dating is bad, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're, so, you're right. So this that. is so when people when people get into this, you know, I've got this great system, and and here's how society should work, and so on. I'm like, great, but this let, let's get rid of the state first, and and let's make parenting great uh, for people, and then um, if we're both still alive, which I doubt it, <laughs> uh, then uh, we can uh, we can talk about how your currency system can work, Or, but the better person, since I'm a philosopher and not an investor, mm-hmm. would be to go and take your idea to investors uh, and make the case for it in the free market. Well, and so this is why, to me, the content of particular solutions isn't that important, because since it's either state-based, in which case it's immoral, or it's not state-based, in which case it's not going to happen for a, at least a couple of generations, and uh, if and when it does eventually happen, it's going to be a um, uh, it's going to be in the province of investors rather than my body. Well, that's where I think the beauty of this lies is that uh, you know you believe in very limited government. I do also. No, 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 not not very limited. Well, in, in no government in the ideal situation, but uh, yeah. uh, th- this is something that the point is this only works locally. That That's the main power of it is that there are people who have implemented this you know, kind of systemization. There are very various different variations on it. But the essence is that you have a relatively small community that, you know, where everybody has a bank account that basically uh, uh invites everybody to stay as close to zero on your account as possible because that means you're in balance with how much you've given and how much you've taken. Now, if you want to be very rich, have a big house, you still can because you can work hard, you can gain whatever you want through the system, but there's no reason to hoard the money itself. And that, uh, you know, that sort of puts a rut in the current system that we have, whereas because money is finite, doesn't matter what amount you make it because it's finite people will hoard it but when you make money infinite but only you can only get it through doing things for other people you make it a social resource and that's great for anarchists because you don't need a state to issue money you can do it yourself you can make a simple app and you know you just have an exchange you say you know what i want this from you you contracts everything still works lawyers everything still works but you don't need anybody else. You don't need a bank or a government to give you some currency to exchange. You can create the exchange medium whenever you need it. And when you don't need to exchange, you don't need money. You don't need to hoard money. When you want something, anything at all, you can just go to someone who has it and say, hey, you know, I'd like to work with you. Can you do this for me? You can go into a negative uh, saldo on your on your account for a while. That's fine. Your social group will check that. Okay, sorry, I got to interrupt you because I have to move on to the next caller. Look, I mean, if if it's a great idea, fantastic. You know, you can. Uh, I would suggest looking into Bitcoin because I think that there's a bunch of stuff there that uh, you might uh, find some some value in. But you're yeah, you're making a pitch to a non-investor, so I don't really have a huge amount to say other than I think ideas are interesting and I can't wait to see what the free market does in terms of currency when we're finally free of uh, at least central banking, if not the state. But thanks a lot. Okay, for your call, Florian. It was, Thank a, you it was also. a pleasure. 
All right, take care. All right, up next is Dana. Dana wrote in and said, My whole life, I felt like the black sheep. Is that genetic or based on the family that raised me? Which came first? They treated me differently, therefore I felt and acted in rebellion, or I acted in defiance and they treated me differently because of it. I'm a white Anglo Midwestern American, the whole bit. I was never attracted or drawn to males from my tribe. I had this sense of dead end, if I even entertained the idea of being with an Anglo-American. I can't explain it. Even if I connected emotionally or intellectually, I would feel a huge block if romance even entered the equation. It was such a strong and obvious thing, it was sort of a joke amongst my friends. I was drawn towards black or Latino men, and later I dated a Russian, white, but not American. I'm happily married to an Israeli Jew. Neither of us are religious. I pondered this in the matrix of R versus K selection and wondered if I'm a lone wolf out there to stir up the gene pool. I thought of lions, how some break from the pack to join others. My husband basically did the same. I felt my past was very K by force growing up in a strict Roman Catholic household. Once I left home, I was totally R, and since having kids, getting back to the strong K sensibilities. Does this make sense and have any ties to R versus K selection? That's from Dana. Hmm. Hey, Dana, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Do you want to add more? I mean, I've been thinking about this for half the day, but uh, oh. other than putting out, other than dealing with a lot of Michelle Fields information, which is uh, <laughs> not something I want to do without a full body condom next time. But um, <laughs> do you want to add more? Otherwise, I've got some thoughts or some questions no i'd love to hear the questions it's four almost four thirty where i am so yeah just help me with questions ah, that's, that's late <laughs> in the afternoon don't worry we're we're trying to set up a uh, uh a tuesday show during the day so our non-north american listeners don't have to stay up till hey there's is that the northern lights or am i just stoned from lack of sleep um okay so I'll I'll try and be efficient as best as you can. And if I hear a dull thunk and you stop answering, I'll just be <laughs> okay. um, Did you want what your parents had? I'm sorry? What was the question? When you were growing up, you, you, you thought that was going to be a rant, right? You were getting comfortable. Uh, um, <laughs> did you want what your parents had when you were growing up? Oh, um, no. Well, there's your answer. <laughs> Okay, thank you for your time. <laughs> no, I mean, it, look, if you if you want what your parents have, then you're going to do what your parents did, right? I mean, Very your true. mother was your mother was the model of a sexually su successful female because she gave birth to you, right? So she was able to perform the miraculous act of having a man have sex with her. Very tough for women, as a whole, I know. <laughs> but um, so your your mother was the model of sexual success for you, and so if you did what your mother did, then you would have what your mother had. And so if you don't want what your mother had, then you would not do what your mother did, and you would not be attracted to your father. Because being attracted to someone like your father would give you the life that your mother had, and if that's not what you wanted, then your loins would go blowing in the wind, so to speak. <laughs> right. Okay, that makes sense. That can't definitely be that makes easy. sense. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm. I'm. Uh... I mean, I know this because I didn't want. I didn't want my parents' marriage at all. 
<laughs> like right. that would be like a I'll take a quick death over my parents' marriage or a slow <laughs> death maybe. But um, so so yeah, I I went pretty far afield in my dating world. Uh, I guess you did did too. Um, and that's just because I, I I why would I want why would I want this this disaster? I, I'm not saying your parents were the disaster. I'm just saying for me, like it was like yeah. Right. I, I'm kind of thinking simultaneously. I do see similarities, however, with my husband and qualities in my father. So I'm just trying to, I guess, circle that square. If maybe on a subconscious level, I, I don't know. I couldn't, I can't consciously say I wanted the marriage or the life that my mother had, but I do see certain, like my husband's work ethic and, I just um, a, a little bit. It's difficult for him to share emotions, although that's he's breaking through with that since I've been listening to your show and sharing uh, information with him. Um, so I'm just I, I think I'm that's what's confusing me um, in sorting this out with myself. But would would you say that since I'm assuming that you wouldn't want to be married to someone like your if you didn't want your parents one i assume you wouldn't want to be married to some someone exactly like your dad or very similar no exactly correct that's correct i, I would not right. want so that. what are the what are the traits that you didn't uh what if what are the traits in your father that you wouldn't want in a husband um he was um emotionally unavailable completely and would be dominated by my mother so I didn't have a lot of respect for him for just being the doormat for her. Um, like he wouldn't stand didn't up. Didn't you say your current husband was also emotionally unavailable? Not as severe. And, you know, we we talk. I never saw my parents talk other than, well, even then it was very rare. Um, household, um, you know, kind of the 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 tour list, so to speak. Um, my husband and I, we have deep talks. We share ideas and differing views and things like this. I, I, I've never seen my parents um, in that scenario. Um, so there, that's what I mean. There are similarities, but there are some drastic differences. Um, why do you think that your, sorry to interrupt, but why, why do you think that your parents didn't have the uh, intimacy or openness that you have with your husband? Um, my mom also grew up uh, very, even more strict, uh, Roman Catholic. My father, probably less strict, but uh, very religious. <laughs> to say if that was the culture at the time or the expectations, I, looking back now that they're older and I'm older and have my kids and I'm far away and not pressured with the family and social uh, judgment, I would guess, I would say they're just kind of coward. They've, I, I, I'm sure my mom shared kind of vaguely that she tried to rebel, but I think decided to conform. And even now lately, she's opened up that she wish she could have done things differently. I think she would say that to try to make me feel better, but it <laughs> made me feel worse. But I think it's just uh, falling into pressure. And I, I see that very cowardly. Um, 
I feel like they would want to have lived their life the way they saw fit, but the family or social pressures were just too much for them to rail against, in my opinion. That would be my speculation. When did this sort of, uh, the deep conversations and the emotional sharing, was that always a value that you had? Did you notice it absent and want more of it in your family? Or was it something that you got as a value or a preference or a need later in life? Um, I think it's always been a yearning of mine. And I would, I was, um, I guess the word would be hypersexualized uh, early on or like mid to late teens and in college and just out of control. And I recognized that was just, that needed to stop. And I reeled myself back in. I almost couldn't trust myself. And therefore I didn't keep friends very long because I couldn't trust my judgment <laughs> on my friends to look after me. So, um, uh, I'm sorry. Is it, I is it, got is it totally wrong for me to, to want to know? Hang on. It's, that's fine. Is it totally wrong for me to want to know more about this hypersexualization phase? Because, uh, you're not the first Catholic girl I've heard that. Right. From. No, not at all. That's fine. And I mean, it repeats in my family, my sister, um, I'm the youngest of four daughters. So by the time it got to me, my mom was even more strict. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, you feel free to ask questions, but yeah, I'm, I'm not shocked that I was hypersexualized as a Catholic person, uh, being raised like that. Right. Right. Um, and is it, is it fair to say that since you didn't seem to have a lot of intimacy with your father, that you didn't feel close to him? Oh, right. Yes. I I actually felt at some times um, deliberately rejected by my parents, and then it, it fed into my siblings. Um, they were terrible to me. My oldest, I felt a connection to. Uh, I felt a, I felt like a one-way connection. I felt very close to her. Um, I, I loved her. I felt like more than my mother, even though she didn't reciprocate because she was a teenager, you know, it's having her, if she's, uh, a teenager, having her six-year-old sister cling on to her, wasn't comfortable and not her job to take care of me. Um, so when she moved away to college, it was devastating to me. And then the next one moved away, even though she was, I didn't have a close, as close connection with the other two sisters. The more they moved away, I thought, oh my God, I'm left here with these <laughs> parents who don't like me or love me. And I don't return any emotions to them. So, um, yeah, I've always felt the yearn to connect deeply just with people in general, because that was not existent in my household. And I guess, I mean, part of the hypersexuality, I assume, is that it's hard to feel that you have a value to a man without sexuality, right? Especially a young woman, you can always get a man's attention through a sexual display, right? But the feeling of whether you can get a man's attention in a positive way without a sexual display is something that some women don't want to risk, if that makes sense. Right. And actually through your show in the last year or so, that clicked with me. And I think it resonates with me the most, in the most accurate way, um, at least in that period of, of my life, um, absolutely. I felt like I had nothing to, I didn't feel like I was intelligent enough. I didn't feel like I had any, 
I was funny and clever, but I was sick of being the clown of the family and kind of the jester to entertain them just for exchange of any affection, let's say. And um, absolutely, I think that was my, I guess, trade value. That sounds horrible, but I think that's... No, no, it is. It's like, (laughs) hey... If if you're not that interested in me, how about a little me plus V? <laughs> does that, does that, does that right. get your interest? I can see that it does, even without you saying a word as the table slowly lifts. Anyway, so, um, yeah, the me plus V stuff. I mean, you know, I talked about the me plus stuff in the Robin Williams video, and I have, you know, my own me pluses, you know, me plus funny or whatever. But um, the me plus V stuff is is very, very tempting for women because it's almost always going to work, right? Right. And I'm, I feel, I, I don't know if to say I'm ashamed of feeling ashamed that when I met my husband, um, it was, you know, kind of sexualized from the beginning. Um, and after that, we slowed down. We were married for five years before having kids. From that point, I thought, okay, this, we've got to <laughs> sort some things out because I recognized that was a repeated pattern. What makes him different than all these other guys? If that's how our relationship began, why do I feel with him strong enough to now go forward with marriage and blah, blah, blah. Um, So we were actually married for five years before starting our family because we wanted to take that time to slow it down, kind of do things backwards, unfortunately, but get our values and standards and parenting um, approaches lined up before. Oh, that's, I think that's very wise, and yeah, thank God. There's basically only one. Yeah, there's basically only one reason that um, girls get pregnant in their teens or are hypersexualized. It it really only comes down to one thing. Okay, please share. I'm <laughs> a little bit sleep deprived, so I'm not thinking as. Oh no, there's no reason. Okay. The reason that girls are hypersexualized and act on it. I mean, everyone's hypersexualized in their teeth. Sure, <laughs> sure. But uh, but act on it and and act in it in ways like getting pregnant and so on. The reason why girls are hypersexualized in their teens and act on it is because the boys aren't frightened of their dads. Uh huh. Right. Yes, that would be. I mean, that's that's really all it comes down to. You know, all it comes down to is: Are you scared of the silverback alpha gorilla around <laughs> who's going to rip your nuts off if you mess up with this girl? Right. And clearly the boys weren't that scared of your dad. He wasn't uh, fiercely protecting his brood. He wasn't uh, making sure they were okay. He wasn't, uh, you know, like you got to run the shotgun. You got to run the shotgun. If you want to date the girl with the dad who's involved, you got to sit down and you got to pass his muster. And boy, oh boy, does he ever remember being an itchy, bald, hairy-legged boy chasing after girls when he was a teenager. He knows what you're all about, most likely. And so boys... Who want uh, hypersexualized girls? They don't. They don't run the gauntlet of the silverback dude in the easy chair cleaning his gun, saying, "Hey, six rules for dating my teenage daughter." They all start with "Don't." <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So, so your dad was not guarding you guys. That's absolutely so accurate. You were I, easy pickings, right? Right, and. Um... Maybe you can help me again sort this out. Uh, my mother was, and coincidentally, even if we, w- between all of us girls, if we had a relationship or in high school, you know, a fling or something, I didn't date much in high school. Um, I just, we lived in a small place and I was afraid we might, well, my mother came from a large family, so I was 
actually afraid we were might be somehow related <laughs> to everyone. So I just had this uh, like just stay away uh, until I became hypersexualized. But um, uh, but my mother was the boys knew my mother. So but I guess it's different if it's not the father. Oh yeah, no, signal. it's okay. it's different. It's different. Um, not you know, I mean, there are women at NRA meetings, but they're not in the majority. And uh, I mean, you you probably know all of this biology, right? That that if you if you're a girl growing up and you don't have significant or intimate intimate contact with with men or with the father, you actually go into puberty earlier. Hmm. Okay. I mean, this has been well replicated in a variety of experiments that girls who aren't close to their father go into puberty earlier for the obvious reason that sure. father absence is associated with our selection uh, because it means that uh, you're going to be uh, a single mom and you don't know. So, so the hypersexuality comes with male distance. The male distance also allows an opening for the hairy legged grabby hand boys to come in. Uh, and uh, there are no particular consequences. I'm going to assume that your dad didn't go out and, try and do something unholy to this guy who got your sister preggy oh no not at all and um, right and they that know was, that right that was uh, for me even though i was still a prepubescent teenager uh, it was terrifying to me i I, w- I felt terrible for her i wanted to go and like who is this guy where is he what and i thought oh, what well, why is this falling on my emotions more than my father's it was I, it, it's hard to reflect back on it now that I have a more mature mind, but back then I, I that stood out as uh, very startling, I guess. Um, felt right. Very, and I guess so. So, so if you're you know you're raising kids and they have a close relationship with their father. Yes, they do very much. I mean, it's it's remarkable. You know, I have uh, you know I've I've known families where the the daughters have close relationship with the father, and they are they are like it's like a different species. Uh, right. than a lot of the, the kids I knew growing up. Uh, it, it, this RK thing, again, it's really opposite ends of the whole spectrum. Uh, and, and again, it's not fixed. I think you can change it with, with you change your values. But yeah, that distance from the dad is, um, is, is killer for, for hypersexualization, early puberty, extra hormones, and um, a lack of thought of the consequences as a whole, which is sort of the, one of the R selected things. Now, we've got, of course, the truth about single moms. Uh, this is a, not for you, but for the other listeners. Uh, by the way, I love the birds. But uh, the truth about single moms is a presentation we put together that people should check out, which goes into a lot of this in, in more detail. Right. Um, well, fascinating. Now my mind's spinning on. <laughs> um. So, yeah, the fact that you would look for something different than what you have Makes sense. You know, if you hate the city you grew up in, then you're probably going to be living somewhere else. I mean, if you love the city you grew up True. in, you're probably going to live in that city. So you right. have, um, yeah, the fact that you ended up with something different, uh, you you probably had an instinctive preference for intimacy or you noticed something was missing. You know, like I, in relationships, things go wrong when one person is more tortured by a lack of intimacy than the other, because that other person then who's not as tortured by a lack of intimacy uh, has all kinds of power uh, over over the uh, the other person because they can withhold and it's more torturous for the other person and so on. So you probably grew up, you had a uh, you noticed that something with, was missing, which is probably why you acted out less than your sisters in terms of getting pregnant and all of that. So you noticed something was missing. That probably is genetic. Uh, you probably are smart enough or deep enough to know that something was was missing, and then you tried to 
you know, fill the hole in your heart with a probably a firewood cord of, pe- uh, of penises didn't work out. So, <laughs> right. you know, yes. so then you're like, okay, let me, sh- let me shake out the, uh, the penises from the hole in my heart and try and fill it with something more substantial. Cause you know, that doesn't, doesn't, they don't stack well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do feel sometimes amazed at myself sometimes, you know, reg- regret, but amazed at myself that uh, how, and of course now I have, uh, uh, very few, but very solid, virtuous friends uh, that we look out for one another. But I thought, gosh, until then, how did I make it without diseases, without pregnancy, without? Um, it's remarkable, and all for. Well, you've got a. You probably have a K-selected personality, and you've been in an R-selected environment. So you're smart enough to not get pregnant or get STDs, but the R selection was driving you to the hypersexuality. And then ah, okay. with the ally of good values, philosophy, self-knowledge, um, then you epigenetically switched over. That would be my guess. Okay. So the religious upbringing... I can change the genes of the world! Sorry, just having my Frank, <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein moment, but go on. We are um, reprogramming you at the cellular level with philosophy. <laughs> Sorry, go um, That's going to be someone's ringtone, I can guarantee you, by tomorrow. Um. Okay, so the religious upbringing is K, but can trigger our um, behavior? Is that my understanding? No, 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 because, (laughs) sorry, um, religious upbringings are nothing other than an amplification of the environment. Okay. Right, so if you're a peaceful person, you can find peace in religion. If you're a warlike person, you can find war in religion. If you're, well, like, you can find whatever, It's, it's evolved to be a buffet that limits no one from mm. an exaggeration of personality traits with divine boostage. So okay. if the, the religion probably just made you more of who you are. But um, did you pray a lot when you were a kid? Oh, no. And I was just about to say, um, I, re- I, I, let's see, through uh, first grade through fifth, it was a Catholic school, private Catholic school. And then beyond that, public. I rebelled the whole way. I hated it. I... Uh, no, I didn't buy into it from the beginning. And this maybe goes back to uh, part of my question that um, I'm that my parents tried to force it down my throat even harder. And maybe that's why I felt even more picked on by my family because I resisted the most. My other sisters. Ah, now did, sorry, did your, um, did your sisters, were they more religious? Um. If not deeply believing it, they just played along to get along, if that makes sense. Like, even to this day, they they uh, live to, I guess, besides the pregnancy, <laughs> they live to appease the parents. Um, I'm I'm the black sheep. I, I'm 6,000 miles away from them just simply because it's I have no connection uh, with them. That's I, a that's a high orbit. Listen, can you tell me, do you see a, do you see curvature? I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I startled them with some of the very simple, not even some dramatic philosophical. I mean, they get so startled so easily and offended so easily. And, oh, gosh, it, it, there's so many cases, even though some that evolve around my children. Um, let's see. The oldest and the second youngest do not have children. 
And then there's only well, sorry, sorry, I don't want to get yeah. into too many that's details fine. about no Hang problem. No, I just don't want to get into too many identifiable details about your family. So my guess would be then that if you did not believe in God when you were growing up, you wouldn't even have the pseudo intimacy of prayer, and therefore, if you have a yearning for connection, you couldn't even get the pretend connection of talking to your unconscious by pretending you're praying to a God, and so that would probably leave you more hungry uh, for intimacy and contact since you don't get even the pale substitute of prayer. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always felt alone. I always felt uh, the, the best way to describe it, or as I've described with uh, my close friends, is I never felt protected. And I guess now that we've gone through the, with my sister and the silverback <laughs> ape analogy, <laughs> uh, and <laughs> that makes um right not even a fake ghostly uh protector um hmm okay yeah because if if there's a god at least you can have an imaginary male approval environment in your life uh, if you believe in god but if you don't then uh-huh right right I think that God is is to some degree a, a desire to keep people case selected even if there isn't a man around uh, right. because then it can, at least they can get some intimacy with a made-up man. Here, here's an imaginary testicle friend. Uh, please don't go into puberty when you're eight. Right. <laughs> Good. That makes perfect sense. Right. Hmm. Right. I I don't have anything else to add. I'm <laughs> Hey, we may have actually solved most of your questions. I think so, yeah. I mean that'll I'll still simmer on it and but I think yeah, that kind of fills in the extra blanks that I had. because um, really your show has helped me kind of get even to this point. Um which by the way, I'm a donor. I haven't I, there's been a few recent months I haven't donated. Um but I use your Amazon affiliate link and I share your content. So listen, oh, please that. donate. Listen, that's... Oh. That's, I appreciate that's you totally guys. fine. I, I'd rather you spend your money on your kids, so I, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, listen, I'll... I'll... <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Sorry, I, don't know what, I don't know what happened there. Usually the machinery is well-tuned, but occasionally um, the airplane just explodes in midair for no reason. <laughs> I had to say. So um, appreciate your call. Listen, feel free to call back in anytime. It was a real pleasure to chat with you, and, and this is the kind of stuff that I... I like in terms of, hey, it's not about the election. <laughs> so right. <laughs> um, I appreciate you calling in. And um, I assume you're doing the whole peaceful parenting thing. So I don't need to nag you about that. Yes, absolutely. Even before I knew there was a name for it, uh, this kind of got sorted out before we had kids. So I, yeah, kind of found it without knowing there was a name for it. So just kind of good to know Excellent. that there's other avenues. So. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for calling in. Of course, thanks for everyone. I'm going to give my usual praise and thanks and appreciation for everyone who calls in. It is a real joy, a privilege and a pleasure for us to be able to have these conversations with you and share them with a thirsty for knowledge, hungry for intimacy, desperate for facts uh, and connection world. So thanks everyone so much. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out, pay for what you consume. You know it's the right thing to do. I don't need to tell you. Just listen to your conscience. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. FDRURL.com slash Amazon to use our affiliate link. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, so much. It is a glorious time to be a thinker. We'll talk to you soon.